What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Trent Collars podcast. Today's episode is something a little different. This is going to be the first in a series tracing the web of organized crime, intelligence, and high-level elites and politicians that gave rise to Jeffrey Epstein. The first half to two-thirds of this series is going to be focused on the narrative outlined by Whitney Webb in her two-volume book, One Nation Under Blackmail, and is going to take us through the sordid history starting from the 1930s and 1940s and ending with the arrest of Epstein in 2003. I want to go ahead and say that I don't make any money from this podcast, and if you'd like to make any sort of monetary donations at this time, please direct them towards Whitney Webb. I will have all of her information linked below. My goal here is simply to take Whitney's narrative verify it by looking through her source material as well as finding my own evidence to corroborate these claims and present them to you in a manner that will hopefully allow you to make your own decision as to whether or not they have credibility. And once we get into the episodes, I'll be keeping my own commentary to myself and reading directly from or paraphrasing the source material or One Nation Under Blackmail. Even if you only find 50% of what's being said here to be true, I think it's more than enough to at least begin to question the lies and propaganda being forced down our throat by the government. I'd also like for this to become a discussion. If you have source material or evidence that provides support or opposition to the claims being made here, please drop them into the comments section. This series is about finding truth. It is not about spinning a fantastical tale and telling you to believe it without question. This is also my first podcast of this nature, so please let me know what you like or dislike, or if there's any changes that could be made to the formatting to make it more enjoyable for the listeners. All right, let's get into it. World War II gave the Mafia a new lease on life. In the United States, the Office of Naval Intelligence, O&I, became increasingly concerned over a series of sabotage incidents on the New York waterfront, which culminated in the burning of the French liner Normandy on the eve of its christening as an Allied troop ship. In the words of William B. Herlands, New York's Commissioner of Investigation, who examined the operation in detail after the war, we were faced with a grave national emergency. A blackout was imposed over the waterfront area within the 3rd Naval District, which included New York and New Jersey. Many of our ships were being sunk by enemy submarines off the Atlantic coast, and the outcome of the war hung in the balance. Tasked with this assignment was Charles Radcliffe Haffenden. Several agents assigned to Haffenden for this task had previously though as we will see throughout this tale previously rarely means no longer tied to, the then U.S. State Attorney and future Governor of New York, Thomas E. Dewey. Through these connections, Haffenden learned of the role organized crime played within the ports. Dewey's Chief of Staff, Frank Hogan, suggested Haffenden and the O&I meet with Joseph Joe Sox Lanza. Lanza was officially a business agent for the United Seafood Workers Union. He was also a mobster in his own right and was known as the racket boss of the Fulton Fish Market. Compared to the stature of the other criminal figures in New York, though, Lonzo was a small fry, and he knew it. And as a result, he ended up suggesting the O&I talk to either Meyer Lansky, who controlled the Longshoremen Union, or Frank Costello, a gambling figure with numerous interests throughout the waterfront. But to get to them, O&I would have to first meet Charles Lucky Luciano. Luciano at the time was serving a 35-year prison sentence given to him by Thomas Dewey for running New York City's prostitution racket. Haffenden visited Luciano, launching a series of negotiations that would become known as Operation Underworld and would begin a long-standing relationship between organized crime and intelligence agencies within America. Once Operation Underworld was officially given the go-ahead, Luciano agreed to work with the ONI, and his prison cell soon became a meeting ground for intelligence agents and Luciano-affiliated criminals. Chief among them was Meyer Lansky, who helped the ONI cultivate intelligence for the Allied invasion of Sicily. O&I contacted Luciano's attorney, Moses Polikoff. Asked to serve as the intermediary, 
Polakoff demurred, suggesting instead a person whose patriotism or affection for our country, irrespective of his reputation, was of the highest. The next morning, Polakoff introduced O&I to the patriot Meyer Lansky, Luciano's partner in narcotics and bootlegging at the Longchamps restaurant in Manhattan. Citing an intimate relationship with Luciano dating from the early 1920s, Lansky assured the Navy representatives that Luciano was trustworthy. At Polakoff's suggestion, in May 1942, Commander Haffenden agreed to expedite a meeting with Luciano by arranging his transfer from remote Clinton Prison to Great Meadow Prison near Albany. Several weeks later, Polakoff and Lansky met Luciano in a prison interview room and explained the Navy intelligence situation to him. Luciano agreed to cooperate and suggested that Lansky should act as a liaison between Luciano and the people. Those people know that if Lansky said he was acting for Luciano, that statement would not be questioned. Over the next three years, Luciano met with Lansky 11 times and with Polakoff another 20. Although Haffenden never saw Luciano, he met frequently with Lansky, who became, as Luciano had suggested, the intermediary between the Navy and the underworld. Haffenden, Lansky later recalled, would tell me just what he wanted. I would seek the man I thought could do the best to fulfill his needs. Anyone that could be of assistance in the war effort, I would introduce them. Although O&I was still interested in sabotage and security of the New York docks, it also sought Luciano's help in gathering intelligence for the Allied invasion of Sicily, then planned for some time in 1943. Through Luciano, Lansky brought a number of Sicilian immigrants to O&I's offices in Manhattan for intense interrogation by Italian-American agents and Commander Haffenden's unit. At Luciano's suggestion, for example, Lansky contacted racketeer Joe Adonis, who brought six Sicilians to provide strategic intelligence about the island's coast. Most important, the Commissioner of Investigation reported that, through Luciano and his associates, the names of friendly Sicilian natives and even Sicilian underworld and mafia personalities who could be trusted were obtained and actually used in the Sicilian campaign. In mid-1942, Commander Haffenden delivered these names of individuals in Sicily to a Captain Wharton at ONI headquarters in Washington, who later reported that the names turned out to be 40% accurate on the basis of actual experience. Lucky Luciano was a staple in the New York City crime scene. At a young age, he formed his own gang, which offered protection to Jewish immigrants from Italian and Irish organized crime elements in exchange for small fees. This protection was tantamount to extortion, and the money he accrued allowed him to begin expanding into other rackets. Early on, he met and formed an alliance with another young gangster named Frank Costello. Together, the two consolidated their power by taking control of the numerous environs now considered typical of organized crime. Within a short amount of time, Luciano and his cohorts were being propelled to the heights of power in New York City. Luciano rolled into high gear, as if the only business of the mafia was business. Narcotics was organized, the numbers and other gambling rackets were organized, prostitution was organized, the waterfront was organized. According to Thomas Dewey, to my certain knowledge, even then, Luciano's business was far-flung and brought in a colossal revenue. This was estimated to be far, far in excess of $12 million a year. Key to Luciano and Costello's operation was the fact that it had overcome the traditional bifurcation of organized crime into ethnic enclaves. For the first time, Italian, Jewish, and Irish criminal networks intermingled and cooperated with one another. However, this early cooperation would pale in comparison to the network that Luciano and Costello would develop in the coming years. Two key players in Luciano and Costello's criminal enterprise was Meyer Lansky and his close friend, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Lansky was a well-connected Jewish mobster whose shadow was cast across the entire history of organized crime in the 20th century. Various accounts paint him as the intellectual architect behind the multi-ethnic organized crime model that Luciano successfully pursued. 
Lansky was also instrumental in bringing mob groups into the world of gambling, helping set up casinos in the Caribbean that would be utilized to wash the money generated by their various vices and rackets. Perhaps the most important of all, Lansky had also helped develop the use of a complex banking network, which he adopted in an effort to avoid the fate of Al Capone, who had not been taken down for murder, but for tax evasion. This Luciano Castello Lansky Siegel alliance was the basis of what came to be known as the National Crime Syndicate. Far from the well organized image of the mafia often promoted by the media, it can best be understood as a sprawling, faction-filled web of associations and organizations that either collaborated or competed, depending on the situation or the spoils. As mentioned earlier, in 1936, this emerging crime network took its first major blow with the prosecution of Luciano by Thomas Dewey. Alfred McCoy summarizes, Dewey's investigators felt that the forced prostitution charge would be more likely to offend public sensibilities and secure a conviction. A handful of prostitutes who worked in Luciano's brothels testified against him, and a New York court quickly sentenced the gangster to a 35-year jail term. Dewey's role here is pretty interesting. Six years later, when he ran to secure the presidential nomination for the Republican Party, he joined forces with John Foster Dulles, the brother of Alan Dulles, best known for his role as the first civilian head of the CIA in the early years of the Cold War. Dulles was a member of the internationalist camp of American politics that exemplified the attitudes of the elite Eastern establishment. Dulles impressed upon Dewey the importance of overcoming the isolationist factions of the Republican Party. In exchange for his steering of Dewey, Dole saw his own rise through the ranks of the party, ultimately culminating in his service as President Dwight D. Eisenhower's Secretary of State. Even more curious was an investment made by Dewey in the 1950s in an entity called the Mary Carter Paint Company, later renamed Resorts International. Mary Carter was controlled by the Crosby family, and its operations were overseen by the most practical-minded of the family's sons, James Crosby. Mary Carter itself was deeply tied to organized crime networks. It worked hand-in-hand -hand with a number of Meyer Lansky frontmen to develop business in the Bahamas. It should also be noted that James Crosby's brother, Peter Crosby, was a notorious confidence man with an impressive roster of criminal contacts. It's also been widely rumored that Mary Carter was a CIA front company. Lurking in the shadows of Operation Underworld, which has seen the O&I directly recruit Luciano, was the Office of Strategic Services, known as the OSS. The OSS was the wartime forerunner to the CIA and America's first robust national intelligence organization. While the precise role that the OSS played in Operation Underworld is unclear, according to Federal Bureau of Narcotics and OSS agent George White, aligning with a person of Luciano's reputation would be a very naive way of doing business. White maintained that he felt it was outrageous to entertain the proposition, even for the OSS, who were willing to do just about anything. For an organization willing to do anything, lying to protect itself seems like an entirely plausible speculation regarding White's testimony. Richard Harris Smith, a historian of the OSS, noted that Earl Brennan, an OSS officer in Italy, was well aware of the negotiations between Luciano and the O&I. Additionally, Murray Gerfin, the assistant district attorney who oversaw the Luciano negotiations, would subsequently travel to Europe to serve as a colonel in the OSS. At this time, the OSS was operating in many different theaters around the globe. While its paramilitary operations in Europe were largely unsuccessful, the China-Burma-India theater was remarkably successful. While the legends of the OSS have undoubtedly been embellished over time, the OSS was most accurately described as a social club. While its ranks did boast a great number of military officers and members of other governmental agencies such as the FBI and FBN, its leadership and higher-ranking administrative posts tended to be secured by the children of the country's wealthiest elites. For example, in London, Madrid, Geneva, and Paris, posts were held by members of the Mellon family of Pittsburgh who were behind the Gulf oil fortune. 
J.P. Morgan's sons were both in the OSS. Junius Morgan directed the distribution of clandestine operational funds from London while his brother Henry headed the censorship and documents branch which arranged for the cover stories of clandestine agents. A Vanderbilt was executive officer of the Special Operations Branch in Washington. A DuPont directed French espionage projects. In Archbold, the family behind Standard Oil was an OSS security officer in Calcutta. Orion, the family behind Equitable Life Insurance, was OSS Intelligence Reports Chief in Italy. Only the Rockefellers were conspicuously absent from the Donovan OSS ranks, though Nelson Rockefeller headed his own agency, the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs. It's also reported that David Rockefeller, Nelson Rockefeller's brother, also ran his own intelligence apparatus during World War II. A major player in the birth and development of the OSS is General William J. Donovan, a World War I vet and New York antitrust lawyer with firm internationalist beliefs and connections to powerful corporate interests, whom he served during the years between World War I and World War II. At one point, Donovan even traveled to Russia in order to gather intelligence on the Bolshevik Revolution for the J.P. Morgan family. Donovan was first appointed by President Roosevelt to head the Office of Coordinator of Information, COI, which became the seed from which the OSS would grow. Under Donovan's supervision, COI became a clearinghouse for military and political propaganda, in no small part thanks to Donovan's friendship with William Stevenson. William Stevenson had been chosen by Stuart Menzies, the head of MI6, to go to the United States as his personal representative to establish relations on the highest possible level between the British SIS and the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. The mandate given to Stevenson was to assure sufficient aid for Britain, to counter the enemy's subversive plans throughout the Western Hemisphere, and eventually to bring the United States into the war. Stevenson first arrived in the United States on April 2, 1940, ostensibly on an official mission for the Ministry of Supply. It was on this trip that a meeting between Stevenson and J. Edgar Hoover took place, setting up the early, close working relationship between the Federal Bureau of Investigation and British intelligence. This meeting between Stevenson and Hoover had been smoothed over by a mutual friend, the boxer, Gene Tooney. According to Tooney, I had known Sir William for several years. He wanted to make contact with J. Edgar Hoover, but he did not want to make an official approach through well-placed English or American friends. He wanted to do so quietly and with no fanfare. After a short time in the United States, Stevenson took over the 38th floor of the International Building in Rockefeller Center, which the Rockefellers, anxious to help, let for a penny rent. This was a convenient address. Several British agencies promoting intervention were also housed here. The British press service was located on the 44th floor. The British intelligence front group, Fight for Freedom, located its operations on the 22nd floor in the same building, also rent-free. According to Menzies' mandate, Stevenson grew close to J. Edgar Hoover, who seemed enthusiastic about being a liaison to British intelligence on matters concerning the war in Europe. Operating under the guise of a British trade commission, Stevenson set up the British Security Coordination, BSC, their cooperation at this early stage being so close that Hoover himself suggested the name. Although its headquarters was a small suite, room 3606, in Rockefeller Plaza in New York, at its peak, about a thousand persons worked for the BSC in the United States and about twice that number in Canada and Latin America. Its largest single operation was in what seemed a most unlikely location, Bermuda. However, all mail between South America and Europe was routed through there, including diplomatic pouches, and the BSC set up a mammoth, highly sophisticated letter-opening center, complete with code breakers, the fruits of which it shared with the FBI. 
During 1941 alone, the BSC provided the FBI with over 100,000 confidential reports. Better yet, from the FBI point of view, Stevenson, who didn't want any publicity regarding his activities, was quite content to let Hoover claim full credit for British success. However, this relationship would come to a sour end on July 11, 1941, when Roosevelt appointed William Donovan head of the Office of the Coordinator of Information. Soon after, Stevenson began to cultivate William Donovan, who increasingly challenged Hoover's position as the sole conduit between the Americans and the British. This conflict allegedly led Donovan to coordinate with organized crime kingpins, namely Meyer Lansky, to blackmail Hoover in an effort to bring him to heel. Stevenson was more than happy with his newfound relationship with William Donovan. Reporting back to his superiors, Stevenson said there is no doubt that we can achieve infinitely more through Donovan than through any other individual. He is very receptive and can be trusted to represent our needs in the right quarters and in the right way in the USA. After America entered the war, the closest cooperation with the British was already assumed at the highest level, at Donovan's headquarters. Stevenson gave the general vital information about British operational training methods, clandestine communications, and espionage techniques, and the first OSS operators were trained in secret British schools in Canada. The British felt that OSS, in its formative stages, could not have survived without their aid. Donovan knew this well, and in the later years of the war, OSS tried to repay their debt by supplying MI6 and SOE with technical equipment, foreign currency for use in clandestine operations, and at times with extremely valuable intelligence information. This relationship greatly influenced Donovan's decision making. As the efforts to get an American intelligence apparatus up and running were underway, the BSC undertook a propaganda campaign aimed at garnering support from the general public for such an institution. Thomas Maul, in his book, Desperate Deception, shows how the BSC seeded these ideas throughout the mass media, which in turn circulated up to the heights of political power. Maul details a key incident that took place on 9 May 1941. The wealthy, well-connected Vincent Astor, FDR's friend and New York Area Coordinator of Intelligence, sent the president a clipping from the New York Herald Tribune that was probably a plan to build the consensus of voices calling for the plan British intelligence wanted. The Herald Tribune was BSC's favorite outlet for Planet Articles. Moreover, the putative author, George Fielding Elliott, was a devoted British sympathizer, one of the most influential people in the BSC front, fight for freedom, and a favorite vehicle for Planet Articles. Citing the threat from fifth columnists and enemy agents, Elliott pointed with alarm at the lack of a coordinator for FBI, ONI, and G2 intelligence. The United States needed, wrote Elliott, a special intelligence service to act as coordinator, responsible directly to the president, acting with its own authority, and provided with personnel to conduct investigations of its own when necessary. Other members of this intelligence orchestra included William Donovan's friend, Secretary of the Navy, Frank Knox. Another was BSC collaborator Robert Sherwood. Sherwood certainly had the opportunity to plead in Trepid's case. Sherwood spent 12 days as an overnight guest at the White House between April 23rd and May 27th, 1941. At the time, Sherwood was positioning himself to be the head of what was to become the Foreign Information Service of the Coordinator of Information. On June 16th, 1941, Sherwood sent to Donovan a list of people he thought he could trust for the work we discussed yesterday evening at your home. The letter also contains a clear reference to another of those helping Stevenson. Yesterday evening at your house was a wonderfully interesting one. I saw the ambassador again today. He's a honey. It's also not surprising that Sherwood's favorite journalists were also favorites of the BSC. Edmund Taylor, Douglas Miller, E.A. Maurer, H.R. Knickerbocker, and Raymond Graham Swing. Fortunately, one of these, Edmund Taylor, has been quite forthright about his activities with American and British intelligence during this period. In his memoir, Awakening from History, 
Taylor wrote, The propaganda wing, called the Foreign Information Service, was to be headed by Robert E. Sherwood, the noted playwright and one of President Roosevelt's most talented speechwriters. I knew Sherwood slightly, from some of the overlapping interventionist committees with which we were both connected and admired him greatly. This idea of a fifth column was a prime component of BSC propaganda and became a favored tactic of the OSS in order to attack isolationist pockets of America and spread propaganda. One of the strongest promoters of the notion of a Nazi fifth column in America was Chicago journalist Edgar Ansel Maurer, who was previously mentioned. Maurer would subsequently be identified as an asset of British intelligence. While an exaggerated threat, the fifth column as an intelligence tool worked wonders and spawned events like Operation Underworld, building off of actual Axis operations and sympathizers operating in the U.S. at the time. This BSC propaganda undoubtedly helped legitimize American intelligence, something that would also benefit organized crime as well. Following the end of World War II, naval intelligence began advocating for the release of Lucky Luciano. In 1946, these efforts paid dividends, and Luciano was released by none other than the man who put him there originally, Thomas Dewey, on the grounds he was deported to Italy. In the years that followed, numerous other gangsters would be released on the same grounds and would join Luciano in Italy. This move solidified the relationship between intelligence and organized crime as Luciano began to oversee a transnational crime syndicate. One such deportee to join him was Detroit mob boss Frank Coppola, a mentor of Jimmy Hoffa, the crime-linked head of the Teamsters Union whose pension fund would be used in many organized crime-linked financing operations. As a side note, the Teamsters Pension Fund is still active today and as of December 22 received a $36 billion federal bailout from the Joe Biden administration. Jimmy Hoffa and the Teamsters would go on to work closely with the CIA in overthrowing Fidel Castro in the 1960s, after Castro seized many mob-owned casinos during the course of the Cuban Revolution. According to Peter Del Scott in his book Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, the CIA Narcotics Teamster Alliance was first established back in 1946 when the U.S. government paroled a number of mafia figures and deported them back to Sicily. The two key deportees for this connection were Lucky Luciano and Jimmy Hoffa's first mob contact, Frank Coppola of Detroit, the godfather of Hoffa's foster son, Chuck O'Brien. In Italy, Coppola, along with more than 60 other deported American mafiosi, became political muscle to help elect politicians of the CIA-favored Christian Democratic Party. Coppola was said to have been behind a 1947 May Day massacre in Sicily, allegedly financed by former OSS chief William Donovan, in which eight people were killed and 33 wounded. 498 people, mostly left-wingers, were killed in 1948 alone. Even CIA sources have now attested to the intelligence aspect of this post-OSS, pre-CIA covert operation. Former CIA officer Miles Copeland, defending the CIA mafia connection, wrote that had it not been for the mafia, the communists would now be in control of Italy. Thomas Tripodi, an agent who went from FBN to CIA counterintelligence, confirmed that American authorities were instrumental in the revival of the Sicilian mafia. Also deported was New Orleans crime boss Silvestro Silver Dollar Sam Carolla. In the 1930s, Carolla had worked with Costello and Luciano to provide New Orleans with slot machines under the overwatch of their ally, Huey Long, the 40th governor of Louisiana. This operation would also garner the attention of Meyer Lansky, and soon plans were in motion to establish centers of communication and money laundering operations to be used by the underworld on a national scale in New Orleans, as well as opening up three Las Vegas-scale casinos in Louisiana. Following Carolla's deportation, Carlos Marcello was tapped to take his place, beginning one of the most powerful crime boss reigns of the 20th century. 
According to John Davis in his book Mafia Kingfish, Frank Costello sent his blessings from New York, and Sam Carolla sent word from Palermo that he approved Carlo's selection as caretaker boss until he, Silver Dollar Sam, returned from exile. While in Italy, Luciano and Carolla would build a drug empire spanning countries and would involve intelligence agencies of all nationalities. All right, at this point, we're going to shift our focus over to China, looking at the Green Gang and the opium trade. Green Gang's origins are greatly wrapped in myth and mystery, and due to the divide between cultures and the current reign of the CPC, it's likely the origins will never actually be known to us. However, under the leadership of Du Yusheng, the Green Gang helped bring the power of the Kuomintang, KMT, later known as the Nationalist Chinese, under the direction of Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang himself was not a member of the Green Gang, but his political mentor and protector, General Chen Qimei, had been. Between the 1920s and 1930s, the Green Gang was fully integrated with the government of Shanghai and became a primary source of power for the KMT. The KMT relied on the Green Gang to conduct counter-espionage activities and gather political intelligence, and called upon the resources of the organization to suppress trade unions and communists. The Green Gang financed its activities through the cultivation and sale of opium, an activity that was fully sanctioned by Chang and the KMT. Reading from Opium and the Politics of Gangsterism in Nationalist China, 1927-1945 by Jonathan Marshall, opium was a key wellspring of power in the Republican period. When properly tapped, the opium traffic provided a vast pool of liquid profits with which to wage war or buy organizations and influence. By manipulating the traffic, leaders could both penalize enemies, who also depended on its profits, and extend their own political and economic influence. Greater centralization of the traffic inevitably meant greater centralization of national political power. Opium impinged upon the whole fabric of China's political economy, including peasant agriculture, provincial warlordism, bandit suppression, and intra-Guamindang KMT political and military struggles. The national and local bureaucracy was so dependent on profits from the traffic that opium could not be eradicated without a near social revolution. Chiang Kai-shek, who relished neither the traffic nor the disunity it brought to China, came to power under such conditions. Refusing to break with the past or to challenge the pattern of dependency on foreign capital and the traditional class structure, Chiang pragmatically forged alliances with provincial bosses and urban gangsters who demanded protection for their stake in the opium traffic. Chiang himself soon learned the political potential of the traffic and used it to finance his wars against the Japanese, communists, and rival warlords. By moving to centralize the traffic under his personal control, under the guise of suppression, he sought to extend his regime's control. Behind the scenes, however, the KMT was doing quite the opposite. The suppression of opium production was actually an integrated effort to centralize, placing production, distribution, and ultimately control of the substance in the hands of a joint KMT Green Gang monopoly. Support for KMT opium monopoly came from Western modernizers, including the Rockefeller Foundation, which had set up shop in China during the 1910s with the creation of the China Medical Board. Reading from Jonathan Marshall again, Thanks to its lavish and well-placed bribes, the Special Goods Association placed its members on all suppression authorities, from the police to the Shanghai Opium Suppression Committee. When Chiang Kai-shek organized this suppression bureau on July 1, 1935, Du was appointed to its standing committee, ostensibly to represent the Chinese Ratepayers Association, of which he was the chairman. To head the committee, Chiang appointed the narcotic smuggler Dr. F.C. Yen superintendent of the Red Cross Society of China and a member of the informal Rockefeller Foundation-related oil group, which produced other advocates of opium monopoly. Through the China Medical Board, the Rockefeller Foundation undertook efforts to promote modern science, develop medical education programs, and set up hospitals. 
Giving the benefit of the doubt, it is likely that the Rockefeller Foundation's support for opium monopolization was intricately bound up with their health crusade, since opium had important, wide-ranging medicinal applications. At the same time, it was also part of a larger tendency among internationalists, like the Rockefellers, to seek the regulation and control of the global drug trade. After the First World War, the nascent League of Nations formed an advisory committee on the traffic of opium and other dangerous drugs. This committee worked closely with the Rockefeller Foundation's International Health Board, the parent of the China Medical Board. The overarching imperative of the League's efforts for global drug regulation was to rationalize the production of opium and other precursors and to consolidate drug refining and distribution within a series of select major pharmaceutical corporations. Under Chiang Kai-shek's leadership, China simultaneously kowtowed to the League's initiatives while using the monopolization drive to cement itself at the center of drug production for both the criminal underworld and the legitimate overworld. A full-blown narco-state was in the process of being formed as opium cultivation came to be the central focus of the government's revenue-raising programs. Reading again from Jonathan Marshall, opium and the revenues derived from it had become essential to the fabric of Chinese government and its society. In the central provinces of China, especially in Hubei and Hunan, nearly every government organization has come to depend on opium revenue for maintenance. Even law courts, Togpus, Kwamateng organizations, and schools are no exception. Thus, in one locality, authorities charge one picule of opium $320 for general taxes, $32 for communist suppression, $3.20 for national revenue, $1.50 for the Chamber of Commerce, $2.50 for the Special Goods Opium Association fees, $2.50 for the Sisun Girls School, and $7 for protection fees. Later, highway maintenance and more school taxes were added. When the opium finally reached Hankou, monopoly authorities added another $920 tax. The original cost of opium was only $400. Western observers, some of whom were sensitive to the real difficulties of eradicating opium from China, were nevertheless dismayed by the open program of the Nanjing government to exploit its own citizens while publicly blaming the foreign powers for China's narcotics problem. H.G.W. Woodhead, a sharp observer of Chinese politics, commented, it is rather curious to read in the newspapers on the same morning a report from one Chinese news agency stating that 204 opium traffickers have been executed in China during the current year, from another that at present there are about 30 million opium and drug addicts in the country, and from a correspondent in Guangxi, a description of the arrival in that city of a caravan carrying 1,800,000 ounces of opium, which was stored in the offices of the Opium Suppression Bureau until it had paid the required taxes previous to the shipment by motorboat to Nanning and beyond. A study of China's narcotics situation in early 1935, written by an obscure American military attaché named Joseph Stilwell, only confirmed these opinions. Stilwell estimated that half the population regularly or occasionally partake of drugs and that fully one person in five abuse them. Other estimates ranged from 7 to 70 million addicts. Heavy use of narcotics was physically debilitating, but Stilwell saw a more common and insidious effect. The resulting indifference towards work, constructive thought, and ambition, plus the inertia produced by the physical action of the drug, 
tend to reduce the social value of the victim more and more according to the degree of his addiction. Moreover, the opium traffic diverted resources from more productive economic sectors. Huge numbers of Chinese were employed in the growing transportation and retailing of opium. Thus, when Chiang Kai-shek cut into independent Sichuan opium production, he forced 20,000 people out of work in Chengdu and Chongqing alone. Now, where there's money, there's crime. And it was in this context that American organized crime figures first arrived on the shores of China. Among the first was Arnold Rothstein, who acted as mentor to Meyer Lansky, Luciano, and Costello. Returning again to Jonathan Marshall, not surprisingly, American organized crime also had a hand in the international traffic based in China. Arnold Rothstein, perhaps the premier American crime figure of the early 20th century, was probably the first American to organize a major smuggling ring from China to the United States. A financial genius and constant innovator, Rothstein was best known for his fix of the 1919 World Series. He made a fortune from gambling, loan sharking, bootlegging, extortion, prostitution, labor racketeering, and narcotics. Rothstein launched the careers of such men as Charles Lucky Luciano and Louis Lepke Buchalter. As early as 1925, Rothstein had a small fortune tied in international narcotics operations. He used to good advantage the networks of criminal contacts he developed in Europe while beating prohibition. In 1925, Rothstein sent one of his agents, Sid Steyer, to China, Formosa, and Hong Kong to make drug buys for the American market. Another Rothstein agent, George Eufner, followed in 1926. Eufner later became a drug purchaser for Luciano and Frank Costello. It should be noted that following Rothstein's assassination in 1928, Luciano and Bucalter would take over Rothstein's narcotic operations. Another major narcotics ring centered around Louis Bucalter and Meyer Lansky aide Joshua Katzenberg, a one-time bootlegger and narcotics supplier for Arnold Rothstein. Katzenberg and his confederate Jacob Lovovsky sent emissaries to Shanghai to purchase heroin. From there, they shipped the drugs to France and then to New York, where Bucalter's organization took over. It's known that Katzenberg at the time was involved with a secret heroin processing laboratory in the city, refining the opium flowing from Asia. In the space of a year and a half, they smuggled 648 kilograms of pure heroin into the U.S., enough to satisfy 10,000 addicts for a year. Katzenberg developed the novel technique of smuggling drugs in the baggage of ostensible around-the-world tourists. So great was his notoriety that a League of Nations committee called him an international menace. But before he had a chance to test out any new techniques, he and his fellows, including Lepke, were indicted. Bucalter escaped capture until August 1939, after which he was convicted for narcotics, murder, and antitrust violations. Bucalter was executed on March 4, 1944. These convictions and the onset of World War II in the Pacific marked a temporary end to the involvement of American organized crime and narcotics smuggling from the Far East. All of these international traffickers displayed unusual ingenuity and enthusiasm in their line of work, but none could match the extraordinary success of China's leading criminal organization, which for years enjoyed the protection of Chiang Kai-shek's regime for its nationwide opium smuggling activities. Crime and politics in China became inextricably linked with the issue of opium. Hans Dirks, in History of the Opium Problem, that Assault on the East, 1600-1950, suggested the connections between American organized crime and the KMT Green Gang-dominated Chinese opium trade more than likely involved the complicity of Western, predominantly Anglo-American, economic interests in the region.
He singles out in particular the powerful Sassoon family. Nicknamed the Rothschilds of the East, the Sassoons had emerged as economic administrators in Iraq before organizing one of the dominant opium trading complexes in the East. Reading from Hans Dirks, before the opium wars, all colonial powers had serious difficulties with the extensive smuggling of opium, which was prohibited by the Chinese government. However, they had to use it and collaborated closely with its representatives, the Jardines, Mathesons, or Sassoons, putting all risk on the shoulders of, in our terminology, mafia bosses. After the Opium Wars, the British colonial state was also transformed from a criminal institution into a legitimate occupier of foreign territory. Sassoon established an office in Shanghai, and his sons and grandsons were among the largest opium traders to China. It is said that one-fifth of all opium brought into China was shipped on the Sassoon fleet. Thanks to opium, they became not only the wealthiest family in India, but also the largest real estate dealers in Shanghai. They became, of course, English aristocrats, married into the Rothschild family, and belonged among the richest people in the world. The family also became integrated into the world of oil. They invested heavily at various times in Britain's Burma Oil and the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, a subsidiary of Burma that eventually became British Petroleum, amongst others. During the 1800s, the Sassoons competed for dominance of the opium trade with Jardine Matheson, one of the great Anglo-Hong Kong trading houses that has been firmly controlled by the prominent Keswick family. Reading from Hans Dirks, On the foreign opium front, matters changed more profoundly. There was the competition between the Bengal and Melwa opium in India, particularly a competition between the Jardine, Matheson, Dent Group, and the Sassoon Group of Bombay and Hong Kong. In Hong Kong, David Sassoon had already opened a branch in the 1830s, which concentrated on the illegal opium business. His firm was also established in Calcutta and Singapore. In the 1850s, like Jardine and his colleagues, mostly in cooperation with the Americans Lindsay and Russell, the Jewish Sassoons, later in cooperation with the Jewish Ezra people and some Parsis, could therefore connect every link in the India-China opium chain by the extension of their Peninsular and Oriental Steamship Company services. The Sassoons and company had made a fortune with raw cotton exports from India to China. In India, they were originally only involved in the opium business through banking activities, in the form of loans to poppy producers. In China, therefore, they could make quite different trade connections that would also be considered legal in the eyes of the Chinese. These connections eased their entry into China at the moment they started their opium business. Opium was used as a payment for upcountry purchases of tea and silk. They soon imported not only raw cotton, but staggering quantities of opium for staggering numbers of consumers and addicts. It is difficult to say which of the two groups, the British American or the Jewish, was the most successful. Until the first opium war, Jardine certainly was. The competition became harsher during and after the second opium war, when Sassoon sales on the coast were linked with increasing speculation at the Bombay sales and Calcutta auctions. They furthermore obtained a stake in the poppy production. This yielded considerable benefits from the 1870s onward, while Jardine went on the defensive. Jardine's withdrawal from the trade was not far away. Early in 1871, the Sassoon Group was acknowledged to be the major holder of opium stocks in India and in China. They were owners and controllers of 70% of the total of all kinds. Strict control of costs in India had allowed the group to undersell all others in China for five years, and against this organization, Jardine was defenseless. Its withdrawal from the trade became inevitable. Over time, the interests of the Sassoons and the Keswick intermingled and became part of a vast network winding its way through Hong Kong, Shanghai, and elsewhere. This is by no means ancient history. As of 2013, serving as the Commercial Secretary to the Treasury and the government of UK Prime Minister David Cameron, Lord James Sassoon, the man once tipped to become the next governor of the Bank of England, has joined Asia-focused conglomerate Jardine Matheson as an executive director. 
These dynastic corporate structures not only influenced the shape of the international drug trade during the 20th century, but also the evolution of Western intelligence services during and after World War II. Take, for example, the offspring of Henry Keswick, who served as one of the most powerful heads of Jardine Matheson and the controller of numerous affiliated entities, such as the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation, the Hong Kong and Wampoa Company, and the Shanghai Municipal Council. Two of Henry's sons, John Henry Keswick and William Johnston Tony Keswick, served in the Chinese theater as part of the UK Special Operations Executive. In addition to the SOE, John Henry Keswick served as the personal aide to Lord Mountbatten, the Supreme Allied Commander of the Southern Asia Theater. Meanwhile, Tony Keswick would cross paths with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics veteran and OSS operative Garland Williams, who had been dispatched by Preston Goodfellow, a former Hearst executive and the publisher of Brooklyn Eagle, who was serving as William Donovan's special assistant at the time. According to Douglas Valentine, after meeting with the British spy master Keswick, Williams returned to Washington with the SOE's training manuals and helped establish OSS training schools in Maryland and Virginia. Following the war, Tony Keswick would return to the corporate world and would find himself for a time serving as governor of Hudson Bay Company, a company that was essential to the rise of the Bromfin family, whom will be the focus of Chapter 2. Through his acquisition of the SOE manuals from Keswick, Garland Williams played an essential role that paralleled and was almost certainly framed by the higher level cooperation between William Donovan and William Stevenson's. At the same time, Garland Williams appears to have operated at the intersection of the American intelligence services still in their infancy and the networks of American organized crime. Peter Dell Scott, in his book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK theorizes that there existed a formation that he provisionally dubs Operation X. Reading from Peter Del Scott, the intelligence mob collaboration established with Operation Underworld did not end after World War II. On the contrary, post-war narcotics operations overseas were subordinated to anti-communist activities, and they were used as a cover for ongoing use of mob assets, above all drug traffickers, around the world. In developing these post-war mob contacts, George White and his FBN associates, notably his former supervisor Garland Williams and his protege Charles Siragusa, functioned as a counterintelligence unit attached to the CIA and at times the Army. Such is the conclusion of criminologist Alan Block from the George White Diaries, stating, In 1948, for instance, while the CIA was conducting one of its first operations, the subversion of Italian politics, George White showed up in Rome for a meeting with his former OSS boss, William Donovan. More importantly, however, the diary discloses that White and his FBN protege, Charles Siragusa, were part of the inner circle of CIA officials who planned and carried out various lethal secret operations. In the 1950s and 60s, it would appear that the FBN systematically subordinated the prosecution of drug cases to a second hidden agenda, the use of traffickers as agents against communism. We can see this in the selective arrests made by George White in a 1959 heroin case involving the anti-communist and pro-KMT Hip Sing Tong gang. This was at a time when anti-communist drug trafficking KMT guerrillas were being supported by the CIA in Burma. The arrests were delayed until after the ringleader, Chung Wing Fong, a former Hip Sing president and official of the San Francisco Anti-Communist League, a KMT front, had been ordered by the U.S. consulate in Hong Kong to travel to Taiwan. In this way, Fong became no more than an unindicted conspirator, and the KMT disappeared from view. White then told the U.S. press that the heroin had come from communist China, most of it from a vast poppy field near Chongqing. 
White's projection of an allies trafficking onto the communist enemy was typical of the FBN as long as it was headed by Harry Anslinger. In this way, FBN officials protected top-level international drug traffickers who were also anti-communists, not just in the KMT, but all around the world. For example, Alan Block reports that FBN Commissioner Anslinger and OSS agents, doubtless in coordination with the CIA, set up private intelligence organizations in the Middle East. 40 years later, Dennis Dell, a veteran of Middle Eastern Drug Enforcement and former chief of the DEA International Intelligence Unit, said for the record that in my 30-year history in the Drug Enforcement Administration and related agencies, the majority targets of my investigations almost invariably turned out to be working for the CIA. Now, George White is an absolutely fascinating character and one that we'll dive into in depth throughout this series. White himself had a history with the hip sing tongs. In 1936, he infiltrated the notorious Hip Sing Tong Brotherhood of Seattle by masquerading as a drug dealer. George White was no stranger to courting the services of organized crime figures to bolster the early American intelligence apparatus. The research carried out by late Hank Alberelli has shown that White cultivated a protege named Pierre Lafitte, who he had recruited into the CIA as a special employee in June 1952. Twenty years prior, Lafitte worked in France for John Fouillatsis, the greatest importer of manufactured Chinese opium into Europe, and a figure of considerable interest to the FBN. Later, Lafitte turned up in Cuba in the company of Amleto Battisti Elora, a Corsican expat who would partner with Meyer Lansky in a Havana hotel. Amleto Battisti, according to a 1955 FBI memo, was elected to the Cuban Congress in November 1954 and was for many years known unofficially as the Numbers King of Havana. At the same time George White was bringing Pierre Lafitte into the CIA, he was himself being recruited by Sidney Gottlieb, a chemist working at the agency's Office of Technical Service. Gottlieb is also a fascinating character and one we'll explore more in depth throughout the series. As a brief version, Gottlieb oversaw the CIA's research into potential truth drugs, shock therapy, sensory deprivation, hypnosis, and all esoteric practices focused on the manipulation of the human mind. The most famous of these programs, MKUltra, saw the CIA become the largest consumer of LSD, which it used to experiment on witting and unwitting subjects. These subjects included soldiers, patients in psychiatric hospitals, prisoners, sometimes organized crime figures, and private citizens. Under Gottlieb's direction, CIA-run safe houses were established in New York City and San Francisco where unsuspecting people were dosed with hallucinogenic substances while being monitored from behind two-way mirrors. Gottlieb was himself impressed by George White's street smarts and his inclinations towards the other side of the law, traits that were necessary for the covert drug program. As one of Gottlieb's agency employees later stated, we were Ivy League, white middle class. We were naive, totally naive about this, and he felt pretty expert. He referring to George White. He knew the whores, the pimps, the people who brought in the drugs. He was a pretty wild man. Under the alias of Morgan Hall, George White maintained a safe house in Greenwich Village, New York City, where he supplied unsuspecting people with LSD and other substances. In order to lure people into his web, he deployed false life stories. He posed alternatively as a merchant seaman or a bohemian artist and consorted with a vast array of underworld characters, all of whom were involved in vice, including drugs, prostitution, gambling, and pornography. In 1955, Harry J. Anslinger, the commissioner of the FBN, transferred George White to San Francisco to fill a vacant post as the FBN district supervisor for the city. 
This was by no means the end of White's work with Gottlieb and the CIA. Instead, he was granted control of MKUltra Sub Project 42, or as White dubbed it, Operation Midnight Climax. Midnight Climax involved a safe house, much like the one set up in New York City, which was then decked out with electronic surveillance equipment. Prostitutes were then enlisted who would lure unsuspecting clients back to the pad, where they would then be slipped LSD. John Gittinger, a Harvard psychologist who was on the CIA payroll, best known perhaps for developing the personality assessment system, later admitted in congressional testimony that the agency was interested in the combination of certain drugs with sex acts. We looked at the various pleasure positions used by prostitutes and others. Some of the women, the professionals we used, were very adept at this practice. Returning to the Chinese opium trade, George White wasn't alone in obscuring KMT involvement in the drug world. Harry Anslinger, boss to both George White and Garland Williams, was a bitter enemy of J. Edgar Hoover, and after rising on the tide of McCarthyism, held deep fear and distrust of China. In an official report, Anslinger claimed that Communist China was producing more than 4,000 tons of opium a year, ticking off seizure, statistics, and arrest reports furnished by the Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, he maintained that all heroin seized in Japan in 1951 came from Communist China, either through Hong Kong or North Korea. Anslinger said traffickers had confessed that profits from smuggling were used to finance the activities of the Communist Party and to obtain strategic raw materials. Protests by Soviet representatives to the CND who hurled charges of his own about bacteriological warfare in Korea and the rape of Japanese women by U.S. soldiers, persuaded few observers in the West. Neither did China's outraged description of Anslinger's statements as a fabrication from start to finish. Importantly, Anslinger did not have any agents located in Asia at the time. All of Anslinger's claims were sourced from intelligence provided by the KMT itself and General Douglas MacArthur's intel apparatus in post-war Japan. The FBN itself would not have agents in country until 1962. Overseeing MacArthur's intelligence apparatus was his protege and fascist sympathizer General Charles Willoughby, who will later become a player in the so-called China lobby. It is doubtful that the misdirection being deployed by Anslinger, George White, and others was for propagandistic purposes alone. Peter Dell Scott's Operation X thesis suggests a dual function. First, it bolstered Cold War propaganda efforts, which roughly followed the same template as the fifth column propaganda of the OSS during World War II. Second, it helped hide the roles of certain individuals, organizations, and networks that worked in tandem with Western intelligence services, militaries, governments, and businesses in the global drug trade. During this period, investigations into organized crime in America were soft-pedaled, if they took place at all, in part thanks to the coercion and blackmail, particularly the blackmailing of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. This also worked to obscure the role of the KMT in the drug trade due to the historical unity of American organized crime with Asian drug traffickers forged in the interwar period. There is the stark possibility that this unity was maintained well into the post-war epoch through the efforts of American intelligence services themselves. This would result from the long-term effects of the OSS apparatus that had been set up in the China-India-Burma theater during the war. This apparatus had been concentrated around a powerful unit called Detachment 101, which incidentally had been set up with the aid of Garland Williams. Many of the most notorious intelligence operatives and soldiers who dotted the landscape of the late 20th century can trace their roots back to this OSS theater. Some of those who served included E. Howard Hunt, 
later a CIA coup master who achieved infamy during Watergate, John Singlob, a major player in the Iran-Contra affair, and also Paul Heliwell, soon to become one of the architects of the convoluted shadow banking strategies and a primary node between the worlds of intelligence and organized crime. In 1943, William R. Pierce, who would later lead the CIA's first training program, became the head of OSS Detachment 101 after his predecessor, Carl F. Eifler, was injured. Pierce subsequently became the head of all OSS operations in the China-Burma-India Theater and personally oversaw commando operations carried out by KMT troops against Chinese Communist forces. Pierce later reflected on his OSS years in an autobiography, and while discussing payment issues needed to finance the OSS operations in Asia, made a startling disclosure. Pulling from Bertil Lintner's book, Burma in Revolt, Opium and Insurgency Since 1948, Bertil summarizes Pierre's autobiography saying, The trip, the author said, had also given us a first-hand understanding of money and opium as other tools of guerrilla operations. Early as it was in the Japanese occupation, we found that paper money, which the enemy, the Japanese, had distributed was received with indifference. Forthwith, we gave the highest priority to gathering large sums of British silver coins. It was also necessary to enter the opium business. The two U.S. officers, one of whom being peers, stated quite frankly that their decision to use opium was based on the fact that it would give their troops a certain amount of freedom of buying power. They did not question whether it was just or unjust. Simply stated, paper currency and even silver were often useless, as there was nothing to buy with money. Opium, however, was the form of payment which everybody used. Not to use it as a means of barter would spell an end to our operations. Opium was available to agents who used it for a number of reasons, varying from obtaining information to buying their own escape. Any indignation felt was removed by the difficulty of the effort ahead. If opium could be useful in achieving victory, the pattern was clear. We would use opium. This OSS activity in Burma would lay the foundation for the country to be used as an essential node in combating communist elements in Asia during the early Cold War. The KMT, after driven out of mainland China, would also use Burma as one of their main outposts, creating a new opportunity for CIA assets to organize a secret army with the prospect of invading mainland China. Reading from Alfred McCoy's The Politics of Heroin, while the work of French clandestine services in Indochina enabled the opium trade to survive government suppression efforts, CIA activities in Burma helped transform the Shan states from a relatively minor poppy cultivating area into the largest opium-growing region in the world. The precipitous collapse of the Nationalist China or KMT government in 1949 convinced the Truman administration that it had to stem the southward flow of communism in Southeast Asia. In 1950, the Defense Department extended military aid to the French in Indochina. In that same year, the CIA began regrouping remnants of the defeated Kuomintang army in the Burmese Shan states for an invasion of southern China. Although the KMT army was to fail in its military operations, it succeeded in monopolizing and expanding the Shan state's opium trade. The KMT shipped the opium harvest to northern Thailand, where they were sold to General Fao Xianan of the Thai police, a CIA client. The CIA had promoted the Fao KMT partnership to provide a secure rear area for the KMT, but this alliance soon became a critical factor in the growth of Southeast Asia's narcotics traffic. With CIA support, the KMT remained in Burma until 1961, when a Burmese army offensive drove them into Laos and Thailand. By this time, however, 
the KMT had already used their control over the tribal populations to expand Shan State opium production by almost 500%, from less than 80 tons after World War II to an estimated 300 to 400 tons by 1962. From bases in northern Thailand, the KMT continued to send mule caravans into the Shan States to bring out the opium harvest. In 1973, 20 years after the CIA first began supporting KMT troops in the Golden Triangle, these KMT caravans controlled almost one-third of the world's total illicit opium supply and enjoyed a growing share of Southeast Asia's thriving heroin business. This CIA support for the KMT in Burma and Thailand would come to be known as Operation Paper. One of the architects of the operation and a close friend of General Fowl was Willis Byrd, nicknamed Mr. Opium. Byrd was an OSS vet who stayed in the Burma-China-India theater following the war. While it's unclear whether or not he was an on-the-books asset for the CIA, he certainly served as a middleman for moving supplies bought with agency funding. These supplies arrived in Thailand by way of a company called Southeast Asia Supply Corporation, more frequently referred to simply as C-Supply. Willis Byrd acted as C-Supply's Bangkok office manager under the direction of Sherman Joy a veteran of OSS Detachment 101. C-Supply was not set up in Thailand, however. The business was instead registered in Miami, Florida by OSS veteran-turned-lawyer and banker Paul Heliwell. At the same time that Heliwell was handling the legal end of C-Supply's activities, he was also acting as consul for the Thai government in the U.S. It was in this capacity that he was closely linked to General Fow and the network of politicians who supported him. C-Supply worked closely with Civil Air Transport, CAT, the CIA's first proprietary airline. The roots of CAT were planted during the Second World War when Claire Chenault organized the Flying Tigers, a volunteer aviation unit set up to provide support for the KMT in China in their fight against Japan. With ranks drawn from the U.S. military, the Flying Tigers trained at bases in Burma, which acted as a logistics hub for their airlifts. Chenault himself had a long-standing tie to the KMT. Since the late 1930s, Chenault had served as a military advisor to Chiang Kai-shek and his brother-in-law, the powerful nationalist Chinese banker and diplomat T.B. Soong. Reading once more from Bertil's Burma in Revolt, the direct Taiwan involvement in the KMT operation in Burma became evident when the Burmese side captured a strangely worded document dated 26 January 1952. To General Commander Li Pingzhen, Li Mi, and all the ranks and files of the whole army. You, under the guidance of the president, have already accomplished many achievements. I take this opportunity of the spring festivity to express my deepest concern about you. The communist bandits have not been exterminated as yet, and our compatriots are awaiting for salvation, wishing you earlier victory and a happy new year. This letter was signed by Chang Qingkua, the son of Taiwan's president, Chiang Kai-shek. Another captured document stated that this army is under direct command of President Chiang. Chiang Qingkua also paid several visits to Mong Sat to inspect the troops, underlining the direct connection between Taipei and the KMT and the Shan states. There were also strong rumors of the presence of U.S. advisors, the New York Times had reported on 29 and 30 January 1952 that U.S. engineers were assisting the KMT in improving the Mong Sat airstrip. These activities were coordinated by a well-known U.S. cinematography company in Bangkok, the Far East Film Company. Headed by OSS veteran Robert North, it had since the end of World War II distributed anti-communist propaganda films throughout Thailand in close cooperation with the CIA as well as the Thai authorities. The Far East Film Company also served as a conduit for 
CIA money to the obscure Southeast Asia Supplies Corporation, or the Sea Supply, as North called it for short. The Sea Supplies Corporation had actually been in charge of sending American-made supplies to Monksat by air since early 1951, when the secret war first began. The covert airlift began on 7 February 1951 as three C-46s and a C-47 flew into Mong carrying arms and ammunition that had been picked up from CIA stocks in Okinawa under a secret program codenamed Operation Paper. The planes, which refueled in Bangkok, were piloted by Chief Pilot Robert E. Rousselot and Captains Robert Dutch Brangersma, Charles E. Hayes, Robert C. Snotty, and Harold W. Wells, all veterans of the airlift in China during World War II and more recently the Korean War. Like the Far East Film Company, Sea Supplies was a CIA front. It was formerly headed by Sherman B. Juiced, a Princeton graduate and one of the top combat commanders of OSS Detachment 101 in the Kaichin Hills during World War II. But its most colorful operative was Paul Heliwell, a well-known intelligence operative who had moved to Bangkok in 1951 to work with North. Heliwell was no newcomer on the Southeast Asia scene. He had headed OSS intelligence in China during World War II. At that time, he had worked closely with notorious Chinese secret police chief Tai Li, who a U.S. observer described as China's combination of Himmler and J. Edgar Hoover. During the war against the Japanese, T.V. Soong, the eldest son of Chinese nationalist Christian patriarch Charlie Soong, had built a Western-style residence for General Vinegar Joe Stilwell on the edge of the Jialing River near the command headquarters of Chongqing. Tai Li supplied the servants who looked after Stilwell when he retreated to this odd edifice in the southern Chinese mountains, which also served as headquarters for the informal Sino-American Corporation Organization, SACO, headed by Tai Li with a U.S. Navy officer, Commodore M.E. Miles, as his deputy. Besides his links to the KMT leadership and to the U.S. military, Chenault maintained an impressive of array of contacts. His lawyer was Thomas Cochran, a top advisor in President Roosevelt's New Deal Brain Trust. Cochran was also close to Heliwell, and both worked together to promote Chenault's aviation plans when the war ended. Back in America, Chenault fell in with the so-called China Lobby, the network of politicians, businessmen, and other players who lobbied for support for the KMT as the only viable group who could oppose the Chinese communist. Reading from Peter Dell Scott's The War Conspiracy, The Secret Road to the Second Indochina War, to understand the complex operations of Air America, which will be discussed later on, one must go back to 1941 and the establishment of the Flying Tigers, or American Volunteer Group, ABG. General Claire Chenault's private air force in support of Chiang Kai-shek against the Japanese. At that time, President Roosevelt wished to aid Chiang, and he also wanted American reserve pilots from the three services to gain combat experience. But America was not yet at war, and the U.S. code forbade the service of active or reserve personnel in foreign wars. The solution was a legal fiction, worked out by Chenault's Washington squadron, which included Roosevelt's brain trust lawyer Thomas Cochran and the young columnist Joseph Alsop. Chenault would visit bases to recruit pilots for the Central Aircraft Manufacturing Company, Federal Incorporated, Camco, a corporation wholly owned by William Pauley, a former salesman for the old aircraft producer Curtis Wright Incorporated, and head of Pan Am subsidiary in China. According to their contracts, the pilots were merely to engage in the manufacture, operation, and repair of airplanes in China, but Chenault explained to them orally that they were going off to fly and fight a war. Following the conflict, Chenault saw that a fortune could be made by obtaining contracts for the airlift of American relief supplies in China. Through Cochrane's connections, 
Philippines, and despite much opposition, the relief agency UNRRA supplies Chinat not only with the contracts, but also with the planes at bargain prices as well, as with the loan to pay them. One of Cochrane's connections, Whiting Willier, promptly became Chenault's number two man. With the generous financing of the American taxpayers, Chenault and Willier needed only a million dollars to set up the new airline. Recurring rumors suggest that Cat was originally bankrolled by Madame Chiang and her brother T.B. Soong, then Chiang's ambassador to the U.S., whose personal holdings in the United States after administering Chinese lend-lease, were reported to have reached $47 million by 1944. Whiting Willier would go on to be the U.S. ambassador to Costa Rica and was also later involved in the 1954 CIA-led coup in Guatemala. When the KMT retreated to the islands of Formosa, now Taiwan, Chenault used CAT to run arms and medical supplies to the national Chinese fighters. Civil air transport would be brought into the world of special operations under the guidance of Heliwell. After he introduced the company to Frank Weiser, the then head of a covert organization called the Office of Policy Coordination, OPC, which would be integrated into the CIA a few years later. Reading directly from the CIA's website, in the early 1950s, CIA's Office of Policy Coordination, the agency's covert action arm at the time, quickly extended a subsidy of $100,000 to civil air transport. The outbreak of the Korean War in June 1950 spurred CIA to acquire CAT outright. On August 23, 1950, the agency acquired the airline's assets through a cutout, a Washington-area banker, and the company was reorganized as CAT Incorporated, ostensibly a private enterprise, but actually CIA's new aviation arm. Thus began an operational partnership that lasted through the Korean War the early days of the U.S. involvement in Vietnam and beyond. CIA's acquisition of CAT was the first of several such proprietary relationships in the aviation field. In 1958, CAT was reorganized as Air America and provided CIA with supply and covert mission support flights, as well as search and rescue capabilities during the war in Indochina. The legacy of CAT came to an end when Air America was disbanded in 1976 with its assets being sold off and absorbed into a CIA-linked firm called Evergreen International Aviation. Meanwhile, several Flying Tiger pilots went on to create Flying Tiger Line, a major commercial cargo operation that involved military contracting and covert operations. Flying Tiger Line would later have a major presence at the Rickenbacker Airfield near Lockburn, Ohio. Cat's later incarnation, Southern Air Transport, would relocate there in the early 1990s, a few years after Flying Tiger Line was absorbed into Federal Express. Connections to organized crime appear in nearly every corner of this web as well. Margaret Chung, an attending physician for the Flying Tigers, was a member of Hip Sing Tong and had ties to organized crime. In the 1940s, Chung traveled to Mexico in the company of Virginia Hill, who herself had close ties to Bugsy Siegel, Meyer Lansky, and the Chicago Outfit. Hill made close connection with many of Mexico's top politicians, army officers, diplomats, and policy officials. This was at a time when Frank Costello and Sylvester Carolla had already set up shop in Mexico, and considering their ties to Meyer Lansky, it is entirely possible that Virginia Hill was involved in their operations. During the same time, Mexico was becoming a vital transshipment point for KMT drug trafficking. While speculative, Based on the presence of Margaret Chung and Virginia Hill, it's entirely possible that KMT operations and national crime syndicate trafficking operations directly intersected with one another at this time. This network can be extrapolated further when considering that Civil Air Transport, one of the successors to the Flying Tigers, was by the 1960s flying in and out of Laotian territory controlled by the Hmong tribesmen. The Hmong were a major supplier of opium at the time. 
Airstrips built to facilitate CATS operations in the area were built by Bird & Sons, a private engineering firm ran by William H. Bird, who was cousin to OSS vet Willis Bird. Returning to Peter Dell Scott's war conspiracy, while General Lansdale was cracking down on narcotics in Vietnam, William H. Bird, the CAT representative in Bangkok, is said to have coordinated CAT airdrops to Lee Mee's troops in the Fertile Triangle. In 1960, after CAT began flying in Laos through the Great Laos Fraud, his private engineering firm Bird & Son began the construction of short airstrips in Mao territory, which were soon used for the collection of Laos opium, some of it destined to be manufactured into heroin in Marcel's, and forwarded to the National Crime Syndicate in the United States. Soon, Bird & Son had its own airline of 50 planes flying U.S. contract airlift to the opium-growing tribesmen, and rumors soon arose that these planes, like Air Americas in the same area, were not infrequently used for smuggling. William Byrd's brother or cousin in Bangkok, China OSS vet Willis Byrd, headed the Bangkok office of a trading company called Sea Supply Incorporated. As noted before, Sea Supply first supplied arms to the KMT troops of General Lee Mi and later trained Fal Shri Anand Thai border police who were also implicated in KMT opium smuggling operations. Like William, Willis Byrd also branched into construction business of his own. In 1959, a vice president of the Universal Construction Company, Byrd was said by a congressional committee investigating corruption in Laos to have bribed an ICA aid official in Vientiane. In 1962, when President Kennedy was struggling to bring the CIA hawks in Thailand under control, his brother, the Attorney General, belatedly returned an indictment against Willis Byrd who has never returned to this country to stand trial. As mentioned before, Willis Byrd was involved in sea supply with Paul Heliwell. Heliwell at this time had risen to prominence within the Republican Party, serving in roles such as delegate for Dwight Eisenhower. He had also taken head of the Florida chapter of Citizens for Eisenhower. Following Heliwell's appointment over the chapter, Oliver McGowan, president of the Sarasota County Republican Men's Club, charged the citizens' movement had been taken over by professionals who refused to work with the regular GOP leaders and who are accountable to no one for the finances they collect. If their methods are continued, they can be harmful to the presidential hopes of Dwight Eisenhower, McGowan continued. He said that three leaders of the Citizens for Eisenhower movement in Florida are all from Miami and are all closely tied together. He named them as Kurt Landon, Paul Heliwell, and James Gilmartin and added, Landon is a substantial client of Heliwell's law firm. Gilmartin is a partner of Heliwell, and Gilmartin is also married to Landon's daughter. We find three men closely allied by business and marriage, who if their plan succeeds, will find themselves in a position of enormous power in Florida and responsible to no recognized Republican authority in this state. McGowan continued, have we a candidate who has allowed his campaign to fall into the hands of political pirates? W.A. Washburn Jr., Sarasota County campaign manager, asked who is going to account to the people of Florida for this slush fund? Is it true, as we have heard, that organizers for the Eisenhower clubs are now being recruited in Miami and being paid at the rate of $150 to $250 per week from funds already collected, I am convinced that Eisenhower and the Republican National Committee are not aware of this disgraceful situation and would not condone it in any degree. At this time, Heliwell was also venturing into the insurance business. He served as consul, secretary, and chairman of American Bankers Life Assurance in Miami, Florida. Reading from Peter Dell Scott's War Conspiracy, Miami, of course, has been frequently identified as a point where many of the more important United States and Canadian and even the French narcotics 
traffickers congregate. American Bankers Insurance, the company from whose office Heliwell doubled as Thai Consul General and Counsel for Sea Supply Incorporated, appears to have maintained its own marginal links with the institutions servicing the world of organized crime and narcotics. The most striking interlock is that of its director, Jack L. King, who in 1964 was also a director of the Miami National Bank. The Miami National Bank was identified in 1969 as having served between 1963 and 1967 as a conduit through which hot syndicate money was exported by Meyer Lansky's couriers and laundered through the Interlocking Exchange and Investment Bank in Geneva. Lou Poyer, King's fellow director of the Miami National Bank and a director also of the Swiss Exchange and Investment Bank, was investigated by the McClellan Committee about his use of Teamster Capital to acquire the Miami National Bank and subsequently indicted for perjury. Heliwell's ventures, and specifically his banking endeavors, were probably related to the flow of heroin that originated as KMT opium and then passed through the hands of American organized crime figures. R.T. Naylor, in his book Hot Money and the Politics of Debt, writes, Miami's commercial and financial position is built on history and geography. Southern Florida was a major port of entry for bootleg liquor in the 1930s, a pivot for the southern leg of the French Connection heroin route in the 1960s, and the early 1980s entrepot for 70% to 80% of the marijuana and cocaine entering the U.S. So great was this inflow that doubts were cast on the integrity of the American air defense system, and governors of the Gulf Coast states called for military action against the importers. Southern Florida is also a major refuge for Latin America flight money, which pours into the Florida banking system and local real estate. The flight capital into real estate business is an old one. In the 1950s and 1960s, KMT money from Thailand and Burma came via Hong Kong to be washed through Lansky-related property firms. The Trujillos, Somozas, and their associates from South America bought up Miami mansions and filled up local banks. But during the 1970s, the inflow became a flood as the middle classes aspired to the oligarchy's standards of secure retirement. Money flowed from Latin America into offshore havens such as Panama, the Bahamas, and particularly the Netherlands Antilles, whence it poured into Florida real estate. By the end of the decade, one-third of all money entering southern Florida's property market was foreign, especially Latin American in origin, with $3.5 billion being absorbed in 1980 alone. The global drug trade is a massive business, with offshore banking allowing it to grow ever bigger as it continues to dominate a large portion of the global economy. Antonio Maria Costa, head of the UN Office on Drugs and Crime in 2009 stated he has seen evidence that the proceeds of organized crime were the only liquid investment capital available to some banks on the brink of collapse during the 2008 financial crisis. He said that a majority of the $352 billion of drug profits was absorbed in the economic system as a result. In many instances, the money from drugs was the only liquid investment capital. In the second half of 2008, liquidity was the banking system's main problem, and hence liquid capital became an important factor, he said. Interbank loans were funded by money that originated from the drug trade and other illegal activities. There were signs that some banks were rescued that way. Costa declined to identify countries or banks that may have received any drug money, saying that would be inappropriate because his office is supposed to address the problem, not apportion blame. But he said the money is now a part of the official system and has been effectively laundered. According to Global Financial Integrity, in a 2017 article, 
Transnational Crime is a $1.6 trillion to $2.2 trillion annual business. Authored by GFI policy analyst Chaining May, the study estimates that counterfeiting is the most valuable transnational crime, coming in at $923 billion to $1.13 trillion on average per year, followed by drug trafficking at $426 billion to $652 billion. These ranges demonstrate the serious magnitude and threat posed by global transnational crime, with the United Nations stating the estimated amount of money laundered globally in one year is 2-5% to of global GDP or $800 billion to $2 trillion due to the clandestine nature of money laundering. It is, however, difficult to estimate the total amount of money that goes through the laundering cycle. This is certainly a conservative estimate. Routers in 2012 stated the super rich hold $32 trillion in offshore havens. Their study conducted estimated the extent of global private financial wealth held in offshore accounts, excluding non-financial assets such as real estate, gold, yachts, and racehorses, puts the sum at between $21 and $32 trillion. This research was carried out by James Henry, former chief economist at consultants McKinsey & Company. He used data from the World Bank, International Monetary Fund, United Nations, and central banks. When such immense sums of money are being generated, it isn't left to idle in the bank accounts in the Caymans, Bermuda, or the City of London. The end destination of a money-washing process is to transform dirty money into seemingly clean investment capital. Journalist Michael Rupert, in his book, Crossing the Rubicon, writes, Now, if you were a corporate executive needing to borrow money for an LBO or to finance a pipeline, you could go borrow the money legally at 9%. Or you could borrow drug money laundered once looking to become legal at 6%. The drug lord is only too happy to own the bonds of, for example, Halliburton or General Electric. But if you really wanted to make a killing, you would launder some drug money onto your bottom line and increase your net profits. You might do this by selling your products off the books and accepting cash for them. Then you would just inflate your net profits without any increased costs. Philip Morris has been charged with doing just that. Or if you made vehicles, you could sell large quantities for a check from an offshore bank, no questions asked, to a guy in South America who wanted to open a Chevy dealership. GM has reportedly done just that. Enron's crimes all centered around the illegal overstatement of net profits. They cooked their books using an accounting system called Pro Forma that allowed them to borrow money with one subsidiary and then book the deposits as earnings. They even created phony companies that could do business using paper or electronic transactions with other Enron companies. This was the purpose of Enron's so-called off-the-books partnerships known as Chuco, Raptor, and LMJ. Enron also manipulated energy prices through a variety of methods to create or worsen shortages raise prices, and rob Californians blind. Enron engaged in a shocking wide array of financial crimes, betraying their stockholders and employees. But all the creativity of Enron executives Andy Fastow or Jeff Skillings or Ken Lay could never produce the pure financial power that drug money offers. And apparently Enron knew that. It ran about 2,000 subsidiary companies all over the world, about 700 of which were in the Cayman Islands. There's no oil or gas in the Cayman Islands. There is, however, an awful lot of drug money. Everything else Enron did had to pass through other companies, leaving records behind. Drug money is much, much simpler. Enron's trading company, Enron Online, was one of the largest money-moving operations in the world. It was just computers and wires in cities and to banks all over the globe. It was a bank, and it was there that the greatest criminal activity occurred. When Enron went bankrupt, the U.S. government allowed Enron to sell Enron online to the Union Bank of Switzerland. 
That meant that all of the evidence of money laundering by Enron is now owned by a Swiss bank and out of reach for federal prosecutors. Neither the Congress nor any U.S. enforcement agency did a thing to stop the sale or the transfer of the records. The evidence simply walked. For banks, drug money also has a special allure. That is why major banks like Citigroup, Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, and J.P. Morgan Chase all offer private client services for the very wealthy with very few questions asked. Yes, the U.S. Treasury and the Department of Justice make a show of being tough under know-your-client regulations, but the truth is that money does pretty much whatever it wants to. And for a bank, every dollar that it has on deposit allows it to lend between 9 and 15 or so dollars based on the requirements set for it by the Federal Reserve System. For a bank, a loan is the same thing an order is for a manufacturer. Loans show up on a bank's books as assets, and that's part of what helps determine a bank's stock value. Of course, if a bank takes an extra fee, no questions asked, as Citigroup did from Raul Salinas de Cortari, brother of the former Mexican president, for laundering $100 million in drug profits, who's to say that money gets reported when it comes to net profits? Catherine Austin Fitz and Chris Sanders go even further suggesting that there's a positive correlation between the upwards trajectory of stock market performance and the consistent ballooning of the drug trade. They write, Is there a correlation between these trends or are they random? It may seem strange to think of a positive correlation between narcotics trafficking and the stock market, but consider. In the late 1990s, the U.S. Department of Justice estimated that the proceeds of such trade entering the U.S. banking system were between 500 and 1,000 billion annually, or more than 5 to 10 percent of the GDP. Now, the proceeds of crime need to find a way into legitimate, that is, illegal channels, or they are worthless to the holders. If one further imagines, that the banking system earns a fee of 1% for handling this flow, rather low considering that money laundering is a seller's market, then the profits for banks from this activity are of the order of five to $10 billion. If we apply Citigroup's current stock market multiple of 15 or so to this percentage, a market capitalization of anywhere from 65 to $115 billion occurs. One can thus readily see the importance of the illegal drug trade to the financial services industry. As it happens, this trade in illegal profits is concentrated in four states, Texas, New York, Florida, and California, or more precisely, the four Federal Reserve Districts, Dallas, New York, Atlanta, and San Francisco. Can anyone seriously suppose that the Fed is unaware of this if the Department of Justice is? In the decades following World War II, other methods for laundering took the forms of capital into real estate, tech, modern tourism, both home and abroad, oil and gas, and the delirious growth of the military-industrial complex. Kirkpatrick Sell, in his book Power Shift, writes, At the end of World War II, the strength of organized crime was in the big cities of the Northeast, Boston, New York, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago, where it had first developed among the Italian and Jewish outclasses, and there were only a few outposts. The Carlos Marcello organization in New Orleans, the Traficantes in Tampa, San Macchio in Galveston, but as the population moved out, so did the mob. And since the new areas were regarded as open territory, all kinds of gangland figures were allowed to move in easily, setting up their own organizations, their own rules, and their own rackets. Gambling centers, which had been dusty outposts in the 1930s, suddenly began blossoming across the rim in the 1950s. Miami Beach, Florida, Phoenix City, Alabama, Biloxi, Mississippi, Gretna, Louisiana, Beaumont, Texas, Gardena, California, and the most blossoming place of all, 
the place where it was all legal, Las Vegas, Nevada. Smuggling, especially of heroin, in which the trade grew steadily more lucrative after the opening up of Asia's Golden Triangle in 1948, tilted to the south, taking advantage of the enormous rim coastline and the porous Mexican border, along which whole networks of Latin connections and Mexican connections were developed. By 1950 or so, Miami had surpassed New York as the leading port of entry for smuggled drugs. Loan sharks found natural waters, supplying cash to the marginal operators that migrated to the growth areas, floating various new enterprises that seemed too adventurous for legitimate lenders, providing all-important front money for backwoods wildcatters in Texas and Louisiana, or for corporate farmers overextended at the local banks. And everywhere in the booming rim, millions of dollars were placed in legitimate investments, chiefly in those high-risk operations where venture capital is hard to come by. Oil exploration, for example, and land speculation, and in those large-scale businesses where sizable amounts of capital are necessary, such as corporate farming, technological manufacturing, and above all, real estate development. So swiftly did this invasion of the rim take place, and so successfully, that when the Kefauver Committee began its frontal examination of organized crime in 1950, fully half the cities it held hearings in were in the southern rim, and pride of place went to Miami Beach. The observations and arguments poised by Sell, Rupert, and Austin Fitz all find home within the complex but understandable web detailed by Gus Russo in his book, Supermob. The supermob, as described by Russo, refers to a powerful circle of Jewish and Italian mobsters and businessmen that operated in areas such as Chicago and California. What makes the supermob unique is that it was a particularly stark and fairly unmasked example of how criminal networks, political power, and legitimate commercial activity mixed together in the period of explosive economic and cultural growth in the wake of World War II. A key player in this group was Jake Arvey. Arvey started off as a political fixer in Chicago's 24th Ward and managed to swing the district in favor of the Democratic Party. Arvey would later write, in the election of 1936, President Roosevelt called our ward the best Democratic ward in the country. By 1928, Arvey was ward chairman and had forged an alliance with notorious gangster Al Capone. The two would later work together to raise Anton Cermak to the mayor's office. On the business side of things, one of Arvey's closest associates was Henry Crown, who later became a major figure in the Hilton Hotel Company, the dominant controlling interest in the major defense contractor General Dynamics, and the owner of the Empire State Building. He subsequently sold the iconic building to Lawrence Wien, a New York City lawyer and real estate developer who was helping manage the assets of the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. The Desert Inn itself was controlled by mobster Mo Dallitz. Henry Crown's business empire first began with his company, Material Services Corporation, a supplier of concrete and other materials for construction companies. During World War II, Crown took leave from material service to serve in the Army Corps of Engineers. During this time, the company benefited greatly from Crown's relationship with Jake Arvey, reading from Russo's Supermob. During his military hitch, Arvey managed to become with no small thanks to friends in the Roosevelt administration, the overseer of the countless international post-exchange facilities on military bases. Soon the military was supplying these PXs with commercial goods purchased from Colonel Crown's Material Service Corporation. As for Crown, he was assigned to duty as a procurement officer for the Western Division Corps of Engineers. Crown's service took him first to Los Angeles where he directed the purchasing of military supplies. 
eventually reassigned to the Great Lakes Division as Chief of Procurement. He was stationed near Chicago and promoted to full colonel. In that position, he supervised over $1 billion in military purchases. One month before his 1945 discharge, Material Service Corporation was sued for more than $1 million by the Office of Price Administration for price gouging a number of Chicago City and State of Illinois agencies. Four years later, as Mrs. Dora Griever Stern began a 14-year legal struggle to obtain her share of Material Service Corporation. Papers filed in 1919 proved that she had invested her life savings, $4,250, for 170 shares out of 800 of the fledgling company. Her investment should have earned back approximately $100 million. She had received nothing. Ultimately, the course decided that she had waited too long to file. Material Service Corporation would go on to become one of the largest government contractors in history. By any measure, it was the forerunner of the present-day Halliburton and Bechtel conglomerates. In 1962, three years after Crown negotiated the merger of Material Service Corporation as an autonomous division with General Dynamics Corporation, it was awarded the largest governmental contract in world history, standing at $6.5 billion for the TFX fighter plane development. General Dynamics had been everyone's second choice after Boeing for the contract and a four-month Senate investigation obtained testimony that political payoffs were made to ensure Crown's successful bid. This scandal-ridden project ended with the plane being one of the great design failures in history. In 1949, RB used insider information about soon-to-be-condemned property to purchase land that the city would soon need to build the Congress Street thoroughfare. With a $1 million gift from Crown, a loan that was never repaid, RV purchased a square block of property, including 27 buildings for $900,000. A small portion of this property was sold back to the city in 1949 for $1,206,452.62 for the highway construction. RV syndicate kept the remaining office buildings. Following Material Services Corporation absorption into General Dynamics, Crown's right-hand man, Patrick Hoy, was installed as vice president of the corporation. Hoy had earlier been president of the Hotel Sherman in Chicago, a popular watering hole for various denizens of the city's organized crime community. Since General Dynamics Board was populated by a cross-section of individuals tied to the Cold War military and intelligence structures, this chain of ownership and associates is a surprisingly straightforward instance of mutual collusion between these spheres and the criminal underworld. In 1966, after leaving General Dynamics, Hoy became vice chairman of the Penn Dixie Cement Company, the CEO of which was Jerome Castle, an admitted old friend of New York crime boss Frank Costello. Harvey, Crown, and Hoy were all close to an important Chicago lawyer named Sidney Korshak. The Korshak family had grown up with the Arvies, and just like Jake Arvey, Sidney Korshak forged an early working relationship with Al Capone. Even before he was officially an attorney, Korshak's side gig while he was in law school had been to act as an advisor to the infamous gangster. His subsequent law partner, Edward King, was the lawyer for Capone's heir, Frank Nitti, before setting off for greener pastures in New York, where he worked for Meyer Lansky himself. Lansky and Korshak also did business together as partners in the Acapulco Towers Hotel. Notably, the magazine New West stated in 1976 that Korshak was the logical successor to Meyer Lansky. Like Crown's business associate, Lawrence Vine, Korshak had ties to mobster Moe Dallas's circle. According to Russo, Korshak lent his considerable legal talents to helping arrange frontmen for organized crime interests in Las Vegas hotels and casinos. Reading from Supermob, 
with Sid Korshak in place to broker these complex hidden casino ownerships and to mediate disputes among the partners, the Hoods needed owners of record whose IRS statements reflected legitimate wealth. The obvious first choice for the ownership role was the non-Chicago supermob associate Mo Dallitz, a lifelong friend of MCA heir Lou Wasserman, Jimmy Hoffa, and Meyer Lansky. The addition of Dallas to the fold would herald a three-decade supermob affair with Sin City. Another associate of the supermob was Julius Caesar Stein, an ophthalmologist and musician that abandoned his medical career to book dance bands and singers. In 1924, Stein founded the Music Corporation of America, MCA, as an umbrella company for his booking efforts. Reportedly, Al Capone owned a secret piece of the company. While this cannot be confirmed, it is true that Capone and Stein had a cozy relationship. Reading from Supermob, Mr. Stein was friends with Al Capone, recalled Charles Harris, Stein's butler and confidant for over four decades. Actor Robert Mitchum said, Everyone knew that Stein worked for Al Capone in Chicago. That's how MCA got into the band business. In return for the supply of whiskey, Stein obtained Capone's muscle to force holdout clubs to book his bands. It is also known to insiders, such as columnist Irv Kupchinit, that Stein gave Capone a piece of MCA, which regularly took as much as 50% of the client's earnings. Stein fine-tuned Capone's bookkeeping model, maintaining murky ledgers in order to render accurate royalty statements impossible. MCA entertainers, such as Bing Crosby, needing relief from freelance black hand extortionists, turned to Stein, who would use his connection with Capone to call off the dogs. When the outfit started placing its newly invented coin-operated jukeboxes in clubs, Stein came up with the top 40 list of most often played songs. Of course, the accounting was far from accurate and jukes were rigged. So soon entertainers became beholden to the outfit and Stein's MCA for the career push afforded by the machines. In 1936, Stein brought a man into the MCA fold who would go on to fundamentally shape the character and direction of the American entertainment industry forever, Lou Wasserman. Unsurprisingly, Wasserman already boasted a background in mob circles. He'd been a publicist for Cleveland, Ohio's Mayfair Casino, which was controlled by Mo Dallas's network. Dallas and Wasserman maintained lifelong ties. Reading from Supermob, another Dallas associate was Henry Beckerman, whose name appeared on the liquor license for the Mayfair Theater, which was run by Mayfields, and which provided early work for the MCA's Lou Wasserman. In 1936, Beckerman was charged as an arsonist, but the corrupted officials refused to extradite his fellow arsonists from out of state, allowing the charges to be dropped. One week after the dismissal, Beckerman's daughter, Edie, who referred to Dallas as Uncle Mo, married Lou Wasserman. Soon, the Chicago mob began its slow creep into Los Angeles, moving into Hollywood and adjacent industries. The man who started off their advance was Johnny Roselli, who would later land in Las Vegas as the Chicago mob's frontman in the casino business. He was placed in charge of skimming operations, moving money into offshore banks in the Caribbean that were themselves controlled by representatives of Meyer Lansky. Perhaps it was his intimate familiarity with this world that helped Roselli become the CIA's mafiosi of choice when it came to recruiting organized crime figures for its covert assassination plots against Fidel Castro in Cuba. By this time, massive amounts of revenue were being laundered through above-board industries. Overseeing much of this was Paul Ziffrin, a protege of Avery and Korshak, who also had close family ties to Lou Wasserman after his granddaughter would marry Wasserman's grandson. Paul Ziffrin acted as the LA representative of Hilton Hotel Interests, and he was the source of the seed capital that launched Store Properties Incorporated, a real estate holding company whose ostensible owner was a man named Sam Genus. Genus was most likely a conduit for enabling the flow of organized crime money into real estate. Reading from Supermob, 
Ziffrin's investments in the Hayward, Deschler, Kirby Hilton, and Franklin were just the beginning. A year before the attack on Pearl Harbor, a new corporation had appeared on the Los Angeles scene, a real estate holding company called Store Properties Incorporated, headquartered at 714 South Hill Street in Los Angeles. Store's owner of record was one Sam Genus, a known associate of mob bosses Longie Zwillman, Doc Stasher, Frank Costello, Joey Adonis, and Meyer Lansky. Genus's criminal record showed that he had been arrested for bad checks in Florida, embezzlement in New York, and mail fraud and securities violations in Georgia. When he died in a 1958 auto accident in LA, his probate, which was handled by Paul Ziffrin and Al Hart, revealed that he had started store with a $93,000 loan from none other than Paul Ziffrin. In 1947, Genius transferred half the stock in store worth $720,000 to Ziffrin. By 1957, store properties had bought thousands of acres of land and over 300 transactions worth $20 million in Los Angeles alone. When store's other California purchases are factored in, in San Bernardino, Fresno, Oakland, and San Francisco, the estimate approaches $100 million. Then there were the additional investments in such states as Arizona, Utah, Colorado, Oklahoma, Florida, Illinois, and New York. One of the properties in the store umbrella, a plush motel in Phoenix, Arizona, was co-owned by Jake Avery's chief Chicago protege, Arthur X. Elrod. Genius, interestingly, was the member of an organized circle of businessmen who helped provide a startup capital for the Committee on the Present Danger, CPD an early Cold War pressure group set up to build public support for the militarization plan that had been drawn up by NSC-68. NSC-68 was a National Security Council policy paper that called for the remarkable expansion of the U.S. military budget. Naturally, the CPD counted among its members many representatives of defense contracting companies, a field that, as noted with the case of Crown, Hoy, and General Dynamics, was becoming increasingly infiltrated by elements of organized crime. The organizers behind this California group group CPD were the movie producer Samuel Goldwyn and industrialist Floyd Odlum. Odlum, a shadowy figure who is now largely forgotten, was the man behind the towering Atlas Corporation, through which he invested heavily into a vast array of aviation companies, film studios, real estate, and natural resources. Atlas Corporation would later gain lucrative government contracts in particular for its interest in uranium mining inside the United States and abroad. Odlum's interests were certainly diverse. Through Atlas, his money seeped into Hilton Hotels, the United Fruit Company, and Pan Am. Atlas also controlled Convair, the aircraft manufacturer and defense contractor, which it sold to General Dynamics in 1953. As part of the deal, Atlas received large amounts of General Dynamics stock and a representative on the company's board. Odlum and Harry Crown, in other words, were directly affiliated with one another. Other associates of the California group backing the formation of the CPD were a number of film industry figures, including future President Ronald Reagan. Reagan was an MCA man through and through, having been represented by the company when it bought out the agency that had previously represented him in 1940. Dan Moldea, in his book on MCA, Dark Victory, writes, During the first four years of his acting career, when his earnings rose from $800 a month to $1,650 a week, Reagan had been represented by William Michael John. In 1940, MCA bought out Michael John's agency and absorbed his clients, which included Reagan, James Wyman, and William Demarest. Michael John then became head of MCA's studio talent department, and Lou Wasserman became Reagan's principal agent. 
Based on the success of King's Row in 1942, Wasserman renegotiated Reagan's contract with Warner Brothers, obtaining a deal that paid Reagan $3,500 a week for seven years. The deal gave Reagan the distinction of being Wasserman's first million-dollar client. The rise of Reagan to the heights of political power in the United States was facilitated in large part by Wasserman and MCA. At the same time, Reagan was vital to the survival and success of MCA in Hollywood. At the behest of Wasserman, Reagan ran for and won the presidency of the powerful Screen Actors Guild. At the same time, Reagan was also acting as an FBI informant, reporting to the Bureau on leftists in Hollywood. Once in charge of the Screen Actors Guild, Reagan began to change the rules to benefit his benefactors. Reading from Supermob, at the time, MCA and all other talent agencies were forbidden by SAG from becoming producers for obvious conflict of interest reasons. A talent agent is at natural odds with the producer over the fees obtained by the talent. With the recent arrival of the medium of television, which was centered in New York, all Hollywood-based businesses, including MCA, were filling the pinch. Stein, Wasserman, and MCA decided that they had to get into television production if MCA was to continue expanding. And to do that, the long-standing SAG rule had to go. Although MCA had been granted an occasional waiver from the rule, they now coveted a blanket waiver for all productions. They had the admittedly brilliant foresight that MCA could pioneer the filming of television programs that could be resold as opposed to the live variety emanating from New York. With Reagan's divorce lawyer, Lawrence Billinson, representing MCA, SAG began considering the unprecedented blanket waiver. MCA frightened the union's membership by warning that all TV production would stay in New York unless MCA was granted the exemption. Rumors were rife that Sid Korshak was also involved in the dealings on behalf of his friends Lou Wasserman and Reagan. Thus, in a lame duck session of his fifth term as SAG president, Ronald Reagan with his new wife Nancy on SAG's board granted a blanket waiver to MCA on July 14, 1952, allowing Stein's exploding MCA juggernaut a unique immunity from the SAG rules. MCA was now the only entity capable of packaging the product from top to bottom. Much as James Petrillo's Chicago Music Union waivers for MCA had given Stein the advantage in that city, the latest favor gave MCA an insurmountable edge over competing agencies in Hollywood. In the aftermath, MCA, now the only entity capable of packaging the product from top to bottom, began to exponentially increase its hold over the entertainment industry. Later, when Reagan secured the governorship of California in 1966, MCA's hidden hand was again lurking in the background. The co-chairman of his campaign was Taft Schreiber, the long-running vice president of MCA, while the company's founder, Jules Stein, went to work arranging funding. According to Moldia, the company's product income would skyrocket from $8.7 million in 1954 to almost $50 million in 1957, some of which was used to purchase the 327-acre Universal Pictures backlot for $11 million in 1958. MCA could now demand that outside producers package more MCA talent into a production or take none at all. According to a source for the Justice Department, which began still another investigation of MCA, the mega agency has a representative stationed at every studio who tipped the agency for future negotiations. The result of the spy craft was that if a studio wanted any MCA talent, writer, actor, director, singer, comic, etc., it had to fill all the positions with MCA clients. This dictum extended to nightclubs as well, and businessmen who refused to succumb to the strong-arm tactics were often forced to hire grade B talent. When the DOJ investigated
created MCA for antitrust violations in 1962, it concluded that the 1952 waiver became the central fact of MCA's whole rise to power. Both Hollywood professionals and law enforcement officials were certain that the deal involved collusion between Ronald Reagan and the MCA. Former MCA executive Burl Adams euphemistically noted, Lou got close to Reagan on that SAG deal. But law enforcement was somewhat less discreet. One DOJ source later remarked, Ronald Reagan is a complete slave of MCA who would do their bidding on anything. And although no one in government formally charged that Reagan and MCA had conspired beforehand, many observers assumed that it had happened. Reading again from Dan Moldea's Dark Victory, considering all the help Reagan received from Stein and Schreiber, the standing joke in Hollywood was that MCA even had its own governor. The Justice Department's 1962 antitrust settlement with MCA and the inconclusive audit of Reagan might have ended speculation about Reagan's relationship with MCA. If it hadn't been for the additional questions that had cropped up about Reagan's finances during his political career, most of the relevant facts about these financial dealings surfaced only after the Kennedy Justice Department, the IRS, and the FBI had closed the books on the MCA investigation. In the years after the 1962 consent decree, Reagan made more than 75% of his personal fortune, which would later be estimated to be more than $4 million. Most of this wealth was amassed through a series of extremely shrewd real estate transactions in California with the help of his friends at MCA. But MCA had actually hedged its bets in that election. Running against Reagan was the incumbent Pat Brown, who was being backed by Wasserman and Korshak. Reading from Supermob, regardless of the gubernatorial election outcome, the Supermob was covered having long-standing ties to both candidates. In fact, Stein and Wasserman's MCA supported both in this election. Producer Henry Denker recalled that Wasserman, like Korshak, supported Brown, while Stein not only backed Reagan, but was also his chief personal fundraiser. And Stein's VP, Taft Schreiber, was the campaign manager. That was Stein's idea, Denker remembered. Taft was the Republican and Lou was the Democrat. That way they had both camps covered, and they gave equally to both sides, and everybody knew that. Denker elaborated, MCA was divided into two groups. There was a Democratic group and a Republican group. They always wanted to have a hand in the White House, no matter which party was there. When Reagan was doing the General Electric show, somebody came up with the idea that he would promote GE to the plants, make visits. These appearances were very successful. They saw how the workers loved him. And somebody at MCA said, Reagan could be the governor of the state. In show business, you go with what's working. That's an old maxim. When Taft died in 1976, Reagan was taken over by Wasserman. After being defeated by Reagan, Pat Brown took a directorship at Investors Overseas Services, IOS, an international mutual fund with connections to Meyer Lansky. Brown had been brought to the fund by James Roosevelt, one of the sons of former President Franklin D. Roosevelt. James, it seems, had organized crime ties of his own. As he had done business with Store Properties, the mob-controlled real estate company that had been set up by Ziffrin and Genus. Also partnered alongside Roosevelt and Store Properties was James Swig, who would serve earlier as Pat Brown's statewide finance chairman in his successful California gubernatorial campaign. The Roosevelt boys seemed to have a penchant for fostering ties to the underworld. James' brother, John Roosevelt, had arranged for Jimmy Hoffa to get a job at Bach & Company, a New York City securities and stock brokerage that handled about 25% of the Teamster Pensions Fund's $160 million investments. Reading from Scott's Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, we noted earlier the pattern of Teamster's pension fund investments with the Murchisons, their lobbyist Irving Davidson, and the mob in Las Vegas. One tends to hear less of the Teamster's central state's pension fund favors to the old establishment, although these were probably just as large. 
In the Kennedy years, FDR's son, John Roosevelt, at Bach Co. in New York handled about 25% of the fund's $160 million investments. There's a deep pattern in this country where mob-controlled funds, licit and illicit, are brought in to revitalize declining old wealth firms. In 1963, the largest Teamsters fund loan of that time, $25 million at 6.5%, went to the aging and almost bankrupt New York realty firm Webb & Knapp, which declared bankruptcy two years later. That $25 million loan kept the cash-hungry Webb & Knapp alive for two more years, at a time when, as Esquire pointed out in May 1963, much of its capital was tied up in a joint Yankee-Cowboy-Dallas-Fort Worth real estate venture on which it was earning no return. This investment was the Great Southwest Corporation, a realty development where control in late 1963 was tightly centered in the Rockefeller and Vine families. We owe this revelation to a congressional investigation of the 1970 Penn Central Railroad bankruptcy, in which it appeared that, as in the case of the Teamsters Pension Fund loss in Webb and Knapp, a dying, publicly held corporation had been looted for the benefit of this major Vine Rockefeller investment. Worse, the surviving Penn Central Corporation's ongoing manipulation of the U.S. tax law's net loss relief provision is said to have charted the course for increasing exploitation of this relic tax provision by more and more bankrupted U.S. corporations, many of them in Texas. The president of Bach Co. incidentally was Frank T. Ryan, a veteran of the OSS, who was partnered with the spymaster William Donovan and other veterans of U.S. and British wartime intelligence in the World Commerce Corporation, WCC. WCC itself was capitalized by a handful of firms, including Bach Co. itself and Floyd Odlum's Atlas Corporation, which was represented on the WCC board by Odlum's brother-in-law, L. Boyd Hatch. With this set of ties, the specter of intelligence connections begins to emerge once again. It is no surprise, then, that there is a direct line running from the Chicago-Los Angeles supermob to the networks that were simultaneously being organized by Paul Heliwell. Shifting focus, on the 45th page of the most well-known of Jeffrey Epstein's two black contact books are the names and numbers of two individuals from the same prominent Chicago family, Nicholas and Thomas Pritzker. Epstein listed two addresses, five phone numbers, and one email address for Nicholas. For Thomas, he had two addresses, one email, and 12 phone numbers, including his main office number, farm phone number, and emergency contact line. Also under Nicholas Pritzker, Epstein placed the name Hyatt Development Corp. The Hyatt Hotel Company had been taken over by the Pritzker family late in the 1950s. While under Thomas, he cryptically noted numero uno. The Pritzkers are a long-standing force in local, state, and national politics. Penny Pritzker, Thomas Pritzker's cousin, became connected to Barack Obama in the 1990s, a relationship that the Obama campaign relied on as the Pritzkers made many lucrative donations to his presidential run. Penny would occupy many important seats of power, including a board seat on the Council on Foreign Relations, membership on Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board, and Secretary of Commerce during Obama's second term. She's also a standing member of the World Economic Forum. Penny's brother, J.B. Pritzker, meanwhile served as the co-chair of Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign before working to broker an agreement between Hillary and Obama. In 2019, J.B. was elected governor of Illinois. Their third sibling, Anthony Pritzker, has avoided taking public office. However, he maintains a post on the advisory board of the Center for Asia-Pacific Policy at the Rand Corporation. Traveling farther up the family tree, it's possible to see the darker origins of this family's wealth, power, and influence. 
Abram Nicholas Pritzker, grandfather to Nicholas, Thomas, Penny, JB, and Anthony, began his career specializing in business law, working at his family's firm, Pritzker & Pritzker. In the 1930s, he decided to dip into the world of business himself, and he and his brother Jack invested in a string of companies across Chicago. One of these was Hyatt, which would help the family secure lasting influence. As was the case with Henry Crown, the Pritzkers had to deal with the hotel and restaurant employees union, where Sidney Korshak was the labor negotiator. Reading from Supermob, what is most relevant to the Pritzker role in the Supermob is the large number of Pritzker transactions that involve known crime figures. Supermob partners, such as fellow 134 tenants Paul Ziffrin and Sidney Korshak, as well as other notables including David Bazelon, Alex Greenberg, Murray Humphreys, and Teamster boss Jimmy Hoffa. Allegations of Pritzker mob links have dogged the family from the earliest times. Jack Clark, a renowned Chicago private investigator, recently recalled what he heard on the streets. Frontier Finance was used and owned by the Pritzkers as a holding company and is believed to be the secret to the origins of the family's involvement with criminals. Pritzker lent to immigrants five for seven, or $5 lent against $7 repayment with interest. It was started on the west side and the Pritzkers let the mob run it for them. This company office was where the mob held their meetings. Frontier Finance was a state licensed loan company with a number of legit investors, such as the Postmaster of Chicago, a former chairman of the Cook County Republican Party, and a retired Chicago police captain. But curiously, the president of the firm was Frank Buccieri, brother of the notorious Fior Fifi Buccieri, one of the outfit's top gambling bosses and a dreaded juice collector. Stronger evidence was surfacing on the West Coast, where the LAPD observed Abe Pritzker meeting with Louis Drogna, brother of LA's Capone, Jack Drogna, in the Los Angeles office of attorney Louis Hiller, a Korshak associate. Louis Drogna was a maid mafioso who later ran the LA family with Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano. The LAPD developed information that Pritzker and Hillier were fronting for gangland money. The supposed purpose of the meeting was to bring the Drognas, who had a million dollars to invest, together with the Pritzkers. Another Abram Pritzker venture was the Franklin Investment Company. In 1947, Abe Pritzker and Paul Ziffrin, whose college tuition was financed by the Pritzker Foundation, partnered with Assistant Attorney General Bazelon to form the Franklin Investment Company in Ohio. With Paul Ziffrin as VP of Franklin Investment, the intent was to invest in debt-ridden hotel properties, such as the 650-room Neal House and the 1,000-room Deschler Wallace Hotel in Columbus. During this period, Franklin controlled virtually all of the first-class hotel rooms in Columbus. One participant in the Franklin deal told the Bureau that Pritzker was a silent partner through Paul Ziffrin and that his participation came as a surprise to the other parties in interest. Franklin Investments' taint went beyond the previously noted Pritzker connection. It more importantly swirled around the fourth partner in the enterprise, a close friend of the Pritzkers named Arthur Green, the man who lent Paul Ziffrin $11,500 to purchase his shares of Franklin. According to LAPD information, Green somehow figured in the California expansion of Jewel Stein's MCA through a relative named Edwin Green, who was an MCA VP. Abe and Art were also on the deed of trust of the Ronin Investment Company property at 5050 Pacific Boulevard in Vernon, California, having loaned hundreds of thousands of dollars to the purchase of Ronin 
which had at least seven subsidiaries. Ronin had been formed by William Ronin of Chicago, who had been fired from the Civil Service Commission, a post he attained through the offices of Jake Harvey in 1942, when it was found that he had whitewashed the investigation of four police captains accused of being on the dole of the syndicate's gambling bosses. On July 15, 1957, Green supplied $173,000 to his Ronin Investment Company to purchase the Davis Warehouse, a property that the county tax assessor's records show to have had an actual value of $2 million. Green stock in Franklin Investment was, per Underworld Custom, placed in his wife Shirley's name, although the Ohio Secretary of State's records show Arthur Green as the secretary of the company. Simultaneously, Pritzker, Ziffrin, and Green formed Lakeshore Management Company, one of whose officers, named M. Woolen also held stock in the Seneca Hotel with Alex Louise Greenberg. The Pritzkers also employed a man named Burton Cantor, whom would eventually occupy a seat on the Hyatt board to serve as their tax attorney. Cantor would in time boast connections to powerful operatives from international criminal networks, not to mention the CIA and Israel's Mossad. Yet early on, Cantor received massive kickbacks from Abram Pritzker after Cantor arranged for the family to take over a San Francisco hotel built by Prudential Financial. Cantor, in characteristic fashion, opted not to pay any taxes on his gains at the time. As part of the deal, Cantor had arranged for secret payments to be made to Prudential executives. What's remarkable about this story is that it took several decades to unravel. Cantor and Pritzker had put this scheme into motion in the 1970s, but it wasn't revealed until 2007. Expanding on Cantor's connections to organized crime, he was also listed as an agent of La Costa Club near San Diego, California. La Costa, for all intents and purposes, was built for and by organized crime figures. Gene Ayers and Jeff Morgan, writing in the Oakland Tribune, noted that La Costa's original developers included Allard Rowan, who was convicted in 1962 on stock fraud charges, and Morris Barney Moe Dallitz, who, with Rowan, was part of the old-time Cleveland gambling crowd. Ayers and Morgan then added, that among Lacosta's visitors have been Chicago politicians Marshall Korshak, whose brother is Sidney Korshak, and Jake Arvey, St. Louis attorney Morris Schenker, a legal defender of Jimmy Hoffa, and one man who reportedly spends more time at Lacosta than anyone else, Alan Dorfman the Chicago insurance magnate who wields tremendous influence over the Teamsters Central State Pension Fund. La Costa itself managed to tap into $62 million in Teamster Pension Fund loans. Importantly, Stanford Clinton, a partner in Pritzker & Pritzker, board member of Hyatt, and close associate of Cantor was a trustee for this pension fund. Other Cantor ventures were located far from the windswept cityscapes of Chicago and the sunny beach adjacent plains of Southern California. He was also connected to a most curious bank located in the Bahamas, Castle Bank and Trust. When the IRS came knocking on Castle's door, Cantor told them he was merely a tax consultant to the bank. This was a lie. He was one half of the bank's top management and he was shepherding money from his various clients into its coffers. Reading from Supermob, in the mid-70s, as the result of a narcotics trafficking prosecution, the IRS mounted Operation Tradewinds, later named Project Haven, an all-out investigation of Castle, referring to the probe as potentially the single biggest tax evasion case in U.S. history. Despite the inability to serve warrants in the Bahamas, Wiley IRS agent Richard Hafe and Detective Sybil Kennedy obtained a list of the bank's depositors, which included the Pritzkers, Detroit land developer Arnold Aronoff, Playboy's Hugh Hefner, Penthouse's Robert Guccione, rock band Credence Clearwater Revival, Korshak Palin actor 
Tony Curtis, and the Mayfields Mo Dallitz, Morris Kleinman, and Sam Tucker. Other Castle memos included a list of Vegas racketeers, such as the Stardust, Yell Cohen, an associate of the outfits Anthony Spilotro, Nicholas Peanuts Donolfo, a Giancana underling, and Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano, who were all doing business with Castle. It is not certain how many of these investors may have been directed to Castle by Sid Korshak, but one longtime friend of Hugh Hefner's recently stated, that Sidney Korshak had been the one that tipped him to the bank. Given all the Pritzker associates involved in the management of Castle, it came as no surprise when Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Newt Royce determined in 1982 that the Pritzkers were in fact the bank's largest depositors. A September 1972 IRS statement noted, an informant, F. Eugene Poe, a former VP and director of Castle Bank, with access to the records of Castle Trust, has stated that the Pritzker family of Chicago, through their Hyatt Corporation, received their initial backing from organized crime. Castle Bank was not the only shady partnership entered into by Cantor and the Pritzkers. In the 1970s, Cantor and Pritzker were also involved in a massive kickback scheme with two executives from the real estate wing of Prudential Insurance Company, which controlled $20 billion in properties across America. In a complex setup that took prosecutors over 20 years to unravel, Cantor and the Pritzkers devised a scheme wherein contractors paid them and the Prudential executives under the table in exchange for a lucrative Prudential business. The Castle Bank saga was but a pointed reminder that while agents like Andy Forfaro were allowed to pursue the mob in Vegas, and years earlier the FBI had resorted to illegal wiretaps to learn more about the mob skimming operations, the government tacitly declared the offshore tax dodges of the former residents of 134 North LaSalle, Cantor, Pritzker, etc., and the similar schemes by the likes of Korshak friends at MCA to be off-limits. It is also worth noting that the tax losses sustained due to the supermob scams, which are estimated in the billions, dwarf those of the regular mobsters who, like Capone, were regularly carted off to prison. Reading from Penny Leneau in Banks We Trust, there were some catches in the caper, however, one of which was the sort of people who had castle trusts. As soon as I saw the names, Hafe recalled, I knew there would be a cover-up. There was no problem with depositors like Mo Dallitz, Morris Kleiman, and Samuel A. Tucker, who had been identified by the Justice Department as organized crime figures and were among seven Castle depositors connected to the Cleveland Syndicate. But some of the other people with Castle Trust raised eyebrows. Tony Curtis, Hugh Hefner, Robert Guccione, Chiang Kai-shek's daughter, and her husband, a now defunct rock group called Credence Clearwater Revival, and Chicago's wealthy Pritzker family, owners of the Hyatt Hotel chain. Helliwell and his law partner Melrose had several accounts, as did Chicago lawyer Burton Cantor. Although Helliwell held the largest number of accounts in Castle, the Pritzker family accounted for its main business. Cantor was a tax lawyer for Pritzker interests and sat on the board of directors of the Hyatt International Corporation. Other Pritzker associates in Castle included Hefner, who planned to join with a Pritzker company in an Atlantic City casino venture, and Cayman Assurance, a Cayman Island self-insurance company created by Helliwell and owned by the Pritzkers. In tax-related cases, the government charged that Cayman Assurance was a tax fraud vehicle to divert money from the United States to Castle Bank. Also on the Castle list was Stanford Clinton, senior counsel of the Teamsters Scandal-Scarred Pension Fund and a former associate of the Pritzker Law Firm. Clinton helped the Pritzkers obtain from the pension fund loans of $54.4 million for their hotels, and it was through him that the family came in contact with Jimmy Hoffa. But Jay Pritzker, a lawyer and the driving force behind Hyatt, told the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement that the source of the loans was irrelevant. You're making the legitimate borrowing at a legitimate rate of interest, and you're going to pay it back. What difference does it really make? other than the risk of unfair accusations. Morally, I see nothing wrong with it, he was quoted as saying. According to a former Castle president who was asked not to be identified because he is still a banker, 
Heliwell established Castle in partnership with Morris Kleinman, a former bootlegger and mob associate. Kleinman's interest was controlled by a Panamanian trust directed by his nephew, Albert Morrison, who is Heliwell's accountant. IRS sources alleged that another owner was Burton Cantor. The presence of hardcore gangsters in Castle Affairs would help explain Heliwell's seemingly double cross of Brigadier General George Olmsted, who had known Heliwell when he ran the OSS China section. Olmsted headed the International Bank in Washington and got stuck with the worthless assets of Castle's sister Bahamanian bank, Mercantile Bank and Trust Limited. Mercantile had most of the same directors and shareholders, including the ubiquitous Heliwell. In the early 1970s, Mercantile found itself in trouble because of large loans to unidentified American investors for stock market speculation. To hide the problem, Mercantile's officials created shell companies to buy the loans. Five trusts and a number of loan portfolios were transferred to Castle, which at the time was in a stronger position. The former president of Castle Bank said that he had objected strenuously to the transfer, but that the bank's directors nevertheless had rammed them down his throat. When he asked Heliwell why Castle had to absorb the trust, Heliwell replied that the transfers were made at the behest of Cantor, who, said Heliwell, had fretted that if the trusts were not transferred, he'll end up with his face down in the Chicago River. Authorities had originally been put on the trail of Castle Bank in 1971 after a man named Alan George Palmer and several of his associates were busted flying marijuana from Florida to Oakland, California. Palmer was subsequently revealed to have been a major producer of LSD, mescaline, and THC in the San Francisco Bay Area since around 1968. Palmer fell under the scrutiny of the San Francisco IRS office, which was then leading a program against drug money networks. This IRS office soon discovered that the dealer had used the then unknown Castle Bank, whose services he accessed via American National Banker and Trust Company in Chicago. Palmer, it seems, had been brought to Castle via Roger S. Basques, Cantor's brother-in-law and a partner in his law firm. It can be noted that Kleinman, whose attorney was Cantor, was reportedly a secret co-owner in the bank. Whether this is true or not, his accounts in Castle reflect his hidden interest in a company called Karat Incorporated, which operated the Stardust Casino in Las Vegas. The Stardust itself was owned by Lodestar Incorporated, a company controlled by Mo Dallitz. This wasn't the only LSD-related banking taking place at Castle. Accounts were also maintained by William Mellon Hitchcock, a scion of the Mellon family. Reading from Martin A. Lee and Bruce Schlain's Acid Dreams, The Complete Social History of LSD, The CIA, The 60s, and Beyond, Hitchcock served as banker for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, although later he insisted he was nothing more than a financial advisor. In truth, he had a lot to say about how things were done. According to Scully, he was involved in numerous planning sessions at his house, but Hitchcock never expected to make big money from LSD. He was in it more for the adventure. He enjoyed his status as the behind-the-scenes facilitator who brought people together and made connections. In the spring of 1968, Hitchcock and acid chemist Nick Sand journeyed to the Bahamas, where they stayed at the spacious mansion of Sam Clapp, chairman of the local fiduciary trust company. Clapp was a college chum of Hitchcock's, and they had been doing business together for years. They arranged for Sand to open an account under a false name at Clapp's bank. Hitchcock and Sand also looked into the feasibility of setting up an offshore LSD laboratory on one of Bahamas' secluded Ks. In addition to his dealings with Resorts International, Hitchcock maintained a private account at Castle Bank and Trust. Given that Hitchcock and the Brotherhood of Eternal Love were based in Orange County, California, it is possible that Alan Palmer's ring was part of their operation, although this can't be confirmed. The San Francisco IRS office looking into Alan Palmer 
requested aid from the IRS intelligence apparatus in Chicago, which promptly tracked down Castle's information. They found a card that listed the bank's principals, several of whom were revealed to have been fictitious characters. At the top of the list was Cantor and his partner, the other half of Castle's management, Paul Helliwell. In Allen Block and Constant Weaver's All is Clouded by Desire, Global Banking, Money Laundering, and International Organized Crime, Block writes, Cantor and Helliwell had known each other since the late 1950s having met while working on a deal between a Cantor client and one of Helliwell's. They both used Mercantile Bank to establish accounts for a large number of their associates before Castle was taken off the shelf, and then later during a large part of Castle's existence. In effect, and for a time, they ran parallel operations. This lasted until 1972, when Mercantile went to a financial tailspin, making it imperative to move certain accounts out of Mercantile and into Castle before they were wiped out. The depositors were not deposed to lose money. These connections show how Castle Bank became a melding of worlds. Cantor's specialty in offshore trust and connections with political power centers and the so-called supermob paired with Paul Helliwell's connections with the Republican Party and intelligence, as well as also having a specialization in offshore banking himself, and intimate connections with the booming opium trade in Southeast Asia, created a money laundering operation capable of silently moving funds for powerful gangsters, politicians, businessmen, and intelligence apparatuses from across the globe. When Castle was first established, it was just a paper company, a company that existed only as a legal entity with no officers, infrastructure, or business activity to speak of. It sat for three years from when it was registered in 1964 until 1967 when it was finally activated. A physical headquarters was established in Nassau and a law firm, that of British expat living in Argentina named Anthony James Tulis Gooding, was retained. Shortly thereafter, the number of accounts at the bank began to balloon. Banking relations were then established with banks in the United States namely Bank of Perrine and Bank of Cutler Ridge. Bank of Perrine and Bank of Cutler Ridge, small Florida-based institutions that were intimately interconnected. They shared relationships not only with Castle Bank, but with one another as well. Both had the same chairman, Paul Helliwell, and they were also owned by the same set of holding companies, H&T Corporation and later Florida Shares. The shares of these companies were owned by Helliwell and his circle of associates, with one being a mysterious figure by the name of E.P. Barry. Reading again from All is Clouded by Desire, the most interesting stockholder was E.P. Barry, who had been a U.S. military intelligence officer in the Office of Strategic Services during World War II. By the end of the war, he was the head of U.S. counterintelligence X2 in Vienna. Barry was a key shareholder in both Florida shares and Intermaritime at approximately the same time and was a longtime associate of William Casey, the future director of the CIA and an OSS veteran. Another bank involved is the Bank of World Commerce, a Lansky-controlled bank that helped move casino skim and other hot money funds abroad. According to Tom Farr, Bank of Perrine had banking relations with the Bank of World Commerce in addition to Castle Bank and Trust. Taking all of this into account, it would seem that an elaborate daisy chain of offshore banking was beginning to form. One of the earlier ventures that Castle engaged in was a convoluted land fraud that netted millions of dollars and intimately involved cancer. The fraud was carried out under the auspices of a company called International Computerized Land Research, ICLR. Gooding, the British Argentine attorney who represented Castle, registered the company and cancer appears to have kept the company float financially, in addition to it using the services of Castle Bank. Thanks to the Bahamas bank secrecy structures, Cantor was able to obscure his position as hidden partner in ICLR. Reading again from All is Clouded by Desire, at the heart of Castle stood a huge real estate scam. The name of the scam was International Computerized Land Research. The relationship between ICLR and Castle was fundamental. ICLR shareholders were James McGowan and James Ferrara, who held 51%, and Cantor and William J. Friedman with 43.5%. 
1%. The remaining few shares were held by two Cantor associates and a partner from the Heliwell Law Firm. James Ferrara was a fairly sleazy operator with a criminal record stretching back to 1926 when he was fined for running a whorehouse. He spent some time in prison in the 1930s and 1940s for violation of the Mann Act, having to do with transporting women across state lines for immoral purposes. In LA, he endured a series of arrests for bookmaking but was not convicted. McGowan was not as criminally colorful as his partner, having only a single conviction in New York for violations of the housing code in 1955 and an arrest in LA for assault with a deadly weapon, although this charge was dropped. ICLR was just one, albeit the largest and most complex, in a string of companies this pair had formed in order to hawk low-value California land at high prices to unsuspecting investors in Europe and Asia. The promotional material, Red One Press Report, lists Nassau, Okinawa, Hong Kong, Zurich, and Munich as sites of real estate agencies representing ICLR. Like Cantor's elaborate kickback schemes on behalf of the Pritzkers, authorities took decades to untangle the web left by ICLR. When indictments were finally brought against McGowan and Ferrara in 1982, the LA Times reported that the duo stood accused of running a land sales empire that defrauded buyers of more than $15 million over a 17-year period, with Assistant U.S. Attorney Gary Fees saying that the $15 million is a very conservative number. Given that Cantor and his associates effectively structured ICLR, provided it with financing, took a financial stake in the company, and provided it with banking services, there are obvious questions as to the ultimate purpose and destination of this pilfered money. Castle Bank wasn't only a repository and conduit for money belonging to tax-evading billionaires, shady businessmen, drug dealers, and land fraudsters. It seems some of their clients wielded a different kind of power that helped grant the bank its knack for evading official inquiry. First, a sweeping IRS probe into Castle that had unearthed an expansive network dedicated to tax evasion was shut down. In addition, the list of names of Castle clients investigators had obtained was declared to have been found through illegal means. Then, a Department of Justice probe into the bank was dropped in 1977. Three years later, in 1980, the real circumstances of this obstruction was revealed. In a Washington Post article, Jim Drinkhall writes, It now appears that pressure from Central Intelligence Agency, rather than any legal problem, was what caused the Justice Department to drop what could have been the biggest tax evasion case of all time. Moreover, the supposed legal obstacle to using the Castle Bank depositors list was questionable at best. The government already had in its possession the same list, legally obtained. What caused the Justice Department to back off seems to have been the CIA's argument that pursuits of the Castle Bank would endanger national security. According to an un named federal source, Castle Bank was one of the CIA's financial channels for operations against Cuba. Heliwell, and presumably Castle, was purportedly involved with the agency in financing a series of covert forays between 1964 and 1975 against Cuba by CIA operatives working from Andros Island, one of the many islands located in the Bahamas not too far from Florida's southernmost coastline. Declassified CIA files show that going back to the pre-Bay of Pigs invasion era, Andros was used as a staging ground for the CIA's cadres of Cuban exiles that the agency had armed and trained to fight against Castro. Later, in the 1980s, Andros would serve as one of the transshipment points for Colombian cocaine flowing into the United States by way of Nicaragua. And all right, guys, that takes us to the end of chapter one. Hopefully you guys found this fascinating. Hopefully the source material provided gave you enough evidence to at least begin to believe some of the claims being made here and to begin to follow the narrative. Like I said, I want this to be an open discussion. So if you have evidence supporting or opposing any of the claims being made, please drop them in the comments section. Also, don't forget to support Whitney Webb. Go buy her books. Check her out on Unlimited Hangout. 
without her narrative, we would not be here right now. So I'd like to give a huge thanks to her. And if you guys would like to make any sort of monetary donations at this point, please direct that towards her and not me. This for me is about pursuing truth and presenting you with information that will allow you to begin to question the narrative. It is not about making money to me. I do not care about that whatsoever. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Like I said, let me know what you like and dislike in the comment section. And I look forward to seeing you guys for chapter two. Peace.